uh, aircraft uh, several times had had us pinned to the ceiling of the aircraft and then would slam us to the floor. There's grenades rolling around, everybody's vomiting and like, shit, welcome to combat kind of thing, right? In our latest episode, we are joined by Jeff Adams, a former Green Beret who has an incredible story outside of his numerous and often chaotic deployments. We discuss how the SF community took care of his wife during an accident, his role as a combatives instructor, and his involvement with the PTSD Foundation of America. This episode jumps right into the crazy events that have taken place in Jeff's life. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Jeff, what's going on, brother? It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, I know I think the last time I saw you was earlier beginning of this year when I came out to Colorado and met up with you and your wife. Yeah, man. It was good seeing you. Yeah. How you been? Good. We've been, uh, Dan and I and Tom, our third partner in the company, have just been kind of plugging away at this book and uh it's i feel like every week it gets crazier and crazier there's more things going on with it but we're wrapping up in about two weeks so kind of at the closing time coming up here soon yeah yeah it must be i mean you you covered a lot of ground and you know i'd be i'm looking forward to reading your book and you know seeing the stories of uh you know a lot of the folks that you got to talk to across the country that's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get started and I mean, just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up kind of to backtrack and go into what originally motivated you to enlist in the army. <laughs> All right. Well, I grew up in Spokane, Washington and, uh, you know, growing up I was, um, you know, I was always involved in sports, mm-hmm. so I was a, uh, a football wrestling track guy, and um, pretty, you know, looking back on it, pretty poor family uh, in terms of income, um, but, you know, rich in other areas, so uh, we, um, we didn't have any uh, college, uh, college money or uh, anything like that. So mm-hmm. I needed to go to college. I wanted to see the world. Um, so like most kids, I joined the army. I actually joined one, uh, as a junior in high school, uh, because I was worried mm-hmm. all my friends were taking their SAT exams and, uh, they're, they're getting, getting ready to go to colleges and stuff like that. I was like, man, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be that guy that's stuck working at the local store. You know what I mean? You're like, fuck, I'm going to uh, fail this test. I might as well do something else. I, I was like, I got to get out of here, man. I can't <laughs> be the guy charging them for their gas or something like that. So, uh, yeah. Um, two weeks after high school, uh, joined the army and then, uh, yeah, everything from there, you know, so that closes, that chapter, um, I haven't really been back. I've been back to Spokane, Washington, maybe I'd say, I think twice mm-hmm. 
wow. in 30 years. So, yeah. You still have family um, up there? What's that? You still have family or anything up there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with today's technology, it's really easy to communicate with them. And, um, my folks like to travel, so they'll, they'll come down to Colorado and see me. Yep. So, and then because, uh, um, the organization that I'm in, uh, or retired from 10 special forces group, when we have, um, three possible locations that 10th group, you know, exists in, or 10th group guys exist in either Colorado, um, Germany, or, uh, uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So, um, for me, since 93 through now, um, you know, I've been pretty much either here in mm -hmm. Colorado or in Germany. Well, and I, my wife is German. I, I noticed that, that when I was out there in Colorado, that you do have a lot of green berets, um, you know, and you get a lot of special, you know, operations guys, like obviously, you know, Kobe, you know, Cochran yep. who runs Uncana. And, uh, uh -huh. yeah, I remember you told me, you're like, Hey, when you see Kobe tomorrow, tell him patch says, what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get that nickname from? Patch Adams, the movie. I know it's the movie cause he's a doctor, but is it really just that that's the whole story behind it? Kind of, uh, tell you what I was going through, uh, so, so when you go through this special forces qualification course, you get, um, you get to make up a wish list, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, in sequence, these are the jobs that starting with my first preference through my last preference, uh, these are the jobs that I would like to have. And my absolute last preference was, um, being a team medic. I, I had zero desire um, to do that. My primary preference was to be a, a weapon specialist. Mm -hmm. My second was to be a demo guy, demolitions. My third was communications. And my last and fourth was uh, medical. And so <laughs> when I graduated selection, they, uh, they said, we're going to make you medical. Because uh, <laughs> I had, I had, they look at your test scores, you know, you like your GT scores uh, from high school and stuff. So um, I had made the mistake of sitting next to somebody smart during that test and cheating off of them. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that reminds me of my high school. When, 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 I, when I went, well, this is the, the, the funny thing is, is, you know, I went to the, uh, the Q course and in the medical phase, we had started with 187 guys and we only graduated six. Um, um, these guys were way smarter than me. I mean, they they were the ones that had guys like me sitting next to them. But uh, I think what got me through it um, was just grit. That's that was it. It was doggedness and it was grit. Um, these guys, you know, they they could go home uh, during this phase and see their families at night. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't because I wasn't that smart. So I literally lived at the schoolhouse, uh, and would study all night, um, to try to pass these tests. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I was still standing tall. 
Um, mm. And at the same time, um, this, uh, or right after graduation, this movie, um, Patch Adams came out, Robin Williams, and uh, Goofball Doctor, uh, who healed through uh, laughter. Mm-hmm. And in my company, so, you know, in, my co- in, a, in a special forces company, there's six teams, six A teams, and there's supposed to be two medics per team. Um, at the time in my company, I think on all of our A teams, there was a total of uh, three medics. Oh, wow. and, so, and so, you know, the guy, the medic that had been there longest, you know, he, uh, he was already called Doc, you know, we called him Doc. And I was a goofball and Patch Adams came out and they stuck, stuck me with the nickname. Um, and you don't get to pick your nicknames. I think I would, you know, pick something cool if I got to pick my own nickname, like right? Reaper but, or something uh, like that. How about yeah, like Reaper, Reaper or something like <laughs> Death Dealer or something. Right? But, but Bringer of uh, Bones. No, they, they stuck me with with Patch, and <laughs> you know they could have said about they could have they could have said a lot worse. So I figured, ah, oh, screw it. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. They could have called you Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, could have called. Well, that's it. The funny thing is, is Band-Aid is actually a, a call sign word that we use really? for our, our dedicated medic whenever we go on target. Yeah. So when I call for a Band-Aid package, uh, that's who I'm referring to. Gotcha. Wow. Um, it's funny hearing you talk about the whole cheating thing because I, it's not fun to admit this, but... I think I cheated my whole way through high school and barely still graduated with like a 2.1 GPA. That's right around where I was. You know, I think I was uh, <laughs> looking over people's shoulder. And... To two point, I think I was like a 2.5 or something like yeah. that. You know what I mean? Season D. Uh, and the only, the, the only reason for me, honestly, um, to get, you know, decent grades, if you will, was because. Um, they wouldn't let me play sports if I didn't pass my classes. Mm-hmm. So I needed, you know, I need, I had to, uh, you know, I had to sit down and I had to do the, do the work Yeah, and, you know, just like a lot of guys in the military, I was very good at the things that interested me and the things that did not interest me, like, you know, social studies and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, I was, I was very bad at. And so um, those were the, the classes that, you know, I would have to look at, you know, uh, a picture of, uh, you know, like um, Dan Gable or John W. Smith, Olympic uh, gold medal wrestlers uh, um, to motivate me through those study sessions mm-hmm. to, just to be able to stay on the team, man. Yep. And the rest of that, you know, during wrestling season was making sure I made weight. Yeah. That's kind of like, um, Dan, you, well, Dan, I feel like you did pretty well in school through and through. I did very mm. well in art and physical education because that's all I cared uh, me, about. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember, uh, I don't know if, uh, if your school had this, but I feel like every school has when the lunch bell rang, 
you'd always have those one kids that would bolt and they'd sprint as fast as they could to get to the lunch line. Do you remember seeing those kids? Yeah. Yeah. I bet half yeah. those kids joined the fucking army. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a great place for the recruiters to line up. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Hand out the fucking, uh, what is it, the pre-made, like, uh, the sandwiches? What are those called? The peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Uh, the Crustables? The, uh, yeah, Uncrustables or something? And the chocolate milk in a bag? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know, man. I freaking, um, I do remember at our, uh, um, at our high school cafeteria, uh, right outside of that, that cafeteria, we had the, the students lost and found, mm -hmm. right? And <clears throat> being from up in the Northwest, you know, we had uh, several really good, not really good, but very decent say, ski resorts. And so I had gone to the lost and found um, and I, you know, I had the snowboard bug, man. I mean, this was 91. So, yeah. uh, or this was, this was late eighties, uh, maybe 88 to 89, something like that. But anyways, um, I'm in high school and, uh, man, I was like, you know, cause I, like I told you, I didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. Right. So I remember seeing this parka, the ski jacket in the lost and found. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just casually go up to the lost and found one, you know, one day and I, uh, I'm like, Hey, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm missing my, my jacket. It's a blue parka. Um, can you, and they're like, well, what size are you? I, I forget the size. And, uh, they pulled, they pulled it out and they're like, is it this one? And I was like, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. <laughs> it turns out it was like it was like two sizes too small for me right <laughs> so uh i had um i had i had cheated i'd i'd used my buddy's lift ticket pass and um i used his old uh snowboarding gloves so all the fingers were like uh wrapped in tape because they'd already been mm -hmm. torn up from the previous season and my snowboard boots were my dad's uh um cold weather work boots that he used to go snow plowing in oh wow um my uh my snowboard was this cool um it was a a bar it was called a barfoot um it was like a burton woody it was just uh you know it was, it was a pretty cool board and those were the white ones one of the original ones so back in the day you used to have to before they would allow you on the slopes right you had to, um, down on the bunny hill, you had to uh, go to the ski patrol and demonstrate that you could safely turn left, turn right, and stop on demand before they would let you on the ski lifts. Okay. Um, this was right at, right at the beginning. I mean, Craig Kelly, had, you know, um, he was like a four-time world champion. Mm -hmm. It just hopped on the scene, you know, Bones Brigade, Powell Peraltis, uh, skater die lifestyle yeah um all that was going on and so my whole ski my 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 snowboard boots everything all my whole setup there to include my season pass costed me 50 bucks and Gosh, damn, that's I, I remember i had to do this i had to it took me five like uh five payments because 
I was only getting, I was donating, <laughs> I was donating plasma to pay for this used snowboard from this guy so uh you know i was doing whatever i could to hit the slopes and so every set like every saturday morning you know i i knew every single guy in my high school class that had a car and i'm i mean starting like at 5 a.m and i'm calling everybody up and i'm trying to weasel my way into a ride up the mountain mm-hmm. and you know, I think that season I end up hitting the slopes probably 40 times. Jeez. Wow. Freaking just, yeah. It's so. crazy that they don't have those rules anymore either, at least that I know of at most parks, where it's just like, you just fucking throw yourself down a double diamond and figure it out. Uh, yeah. Not all of them. I, I've definitely had to do that before. Really? When, yeah. I've never had where to they do have that. you test to make sure, especially for like some, some runs where it's like the only runs that get you down are like a single or a double black diamond, mm. they have you test at the bottom. Gotcha, okay. To make sure that you can turn left, turn right, and stop. Interesting. Wow. Um, yeah. I thought, we, yeah, I thought we grew, grew past that, but. I, yeah, for some reason yeah. I did too, but. So you, you lightly touched on, obviously, a little bit about, you know, special forces and what got you involved, but what really drew you to want to try out for special forces? Was that kind of a calling that you already had originally going into the army? No, um, you know, to be honest, uh, like I said, I was just, uh, I didn't want to be the guy working at the local gas station and I needed a way to get to college. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I was in the army, um, I saw, I remember I saw a green beret and he was, he was escorting some foreign general dignitaries or whatever. And, uh, they were observing our training and I mean, this guy was a beast and he, uh, you know, he just, he made, he made me, you know, start taking a hard look at the, the green berets. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, um, once I, uh, let's say, um, it was in 1993, um, Mogadishu went down, um, October 93, Somalia, uh, Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. And um, that was uh, my cue to, uh, that was my cue to go to Special Forces. Okay. My mm-hmm. cue to join in 91, so when I initially listed in 91, was Operation Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the original Gulf War had kicked off in January. In June, I'm in basic training and, um, I'm like, okay, so college can wait mm-hmm. um, because everybody in my family served, has served. So uh, um, let me get on, get in on some of this and uh, be able to uh, involve myself, I guess, a little more. Yeah. In my, my dad, my uncles and my grandpa and um, in their lives and their stories by, joining the ranks with them. So that was another big reason for me. So that Gulf War joining 93, seeing Black Hawk down, um, having some of the guys from there, uh, they would, uh, they had come by and given, given us classes and a, and that after action review, um, a very honest one to be, uh, honest, (laughs) uh, 
they they were focusing on the mistakes that, that they had made, right? And most most of the time, you know, one of these guys shows up, you're expecting them to to beat their chest and toot their horn. And um, this was it was so you know um, authentic, mm-hmm. and it was so real. Uh, it was like I got to do it. So then um and i put in my selection packet and uh i went to selection in uh uh january a winter class and mm-hmm. um it had its pros and cons i mean uh the cons obviously were it was freezing in you know the mountains and in the swamps there in north carolina um and you had you had to wash your clothes by hand, right? Um, I had uh, I'd blown out both my Achilles tendons, um, and I wanted to cry and complain about it. You know, woe is me, look at me. But so it's like twenty other dudes that had done the same thing, <laughs> and so I was like, well, shit, if they're not bitching about it, you know, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Uh, and the we would wear these you know alice rucksacks with the external frames and we had two two quart canteens on the outside well water when water freezes that it you know freezes out uh outside to in top Mm -hmm. to bottom generally and um in that freezing weather um i had twice those bladders um they uh they exploded on me and so here it is in the middle of winter it's freezing out and i'm i have these you know four liters of water just leaking down the sides of me and so that was definitely motivation to to keep moving and keep my keep my heart rate elevated stay warm um the benefit of that that time period of the year is there's no vegetation yeah uh, or leaves and so it really helped out a guy like me who didn't have a lot of land nav or orienteering experience going into that. So, uh, it was really helpful. Um, yeah. cause they have all these, they have all these draws and you know, they're, they're like micro valleys, uh, that are just completely full of these thorn bushes, right? Mm-hmm. We call them wait a minute vines. And, um, just sometimes it seems like you can't see the end of these things. And so when I started selection, you know, you go there, the packing list says you have to have two patrol caps and um, two watch caps, right? Um, by the end of selection, the draw monster, we call it, which is the thorn bushes, uh, the draw monster had snagged all my hats. Um, they were left in the thorn bushes, whatever. Um, and so what I had done was we we were issued these uh, cold weather cold weather you know pajamas poly polypropylenes and uh so what i had done was i took my polypropylene um long johns and i cut them off i remember cutting them off in the woods i paused just took a break uh pulled up my pants i cut them off took my boots off i put one of those uh uh leggings um over my head around my neck and used it as a neck gaiter and then i took the other one and I put it on my head, uh, as a, as a watch cap. So 
come final formation day, you know, day 21, um, you got done with your 26 to 30 miler and uh, road march. And I'm standing out there on formation road. My crotch is ripped out. Um, uh, my junk is hanging out and my pockets are all ripped up. And I have this weird brown sock thingy hanging off the top of my head. Oh, and I'm standing in formation like that. And um, yeah, so. Uh, you definitely stood out. That, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. So, so, uh, actually, you know, it was, it was funny. I thought I would stand out, but, uh, everybody else was, you know, uh, their stuff was pretty well torn up as well. And so it was just, it was just weird. It was an environment where you, Hey, this guy did something to improvise staying warm Mm -hmm. and it was actually encouraged in that environment. And, and I'll, uh, that was one of the first things about that environment that I had fall, fallen in love with, uh, you know, the guys and yeah. the attitude of the guys that I was around, they were like, dude, that's, that's someone that's got some grit and they don't quit and they're going to find a way. And so, um, that's what we call yeah. That's what we call Jimmy rigging something. Yeah. That's what we call a, red, oh, yeah. a, a redneck rig. <laughs> it's funny. Cause you know, I've been out here in North Carolina for about six months and I know those fucking thorn bushes you're talking about because every time I go <laughs> hiking around and take photos, they blend in. They look like regular plants or they're growing around the trees. And when they yep. snag you, they're hard to step on and get around them like they just catch you. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's so funny, man, because that we've tried like uh, when, when you, you know, you get back at, at the end of the, the night land navigation section of that that day let's say it's individual week and guys are sharing stories by the campfire about how they how they try to get through the the thorn bushes right Mm -hmm. and some of these are so thick guys would take off their rucksack and they would throw them on the thorns jump on their rucksack and then step off on the side (laughs) you know squash down the thorns and then try to throw their ruck again and other guys would try to barrel roll through them. Oh, shit. Uh, one time I, I went into the, I went, one time I went into this, these thorns and I spent like 20 minutes fighting my way through these thorns. Right. And I came out and I was like, yes. And I looked at my compass and I had came out the same way that I came in. And I was like, <laughs> no, <Shit. laughs> no. Yeah. They're, they're a pain in the ass. And usually I try oh, and step man. on them, but when there's a bunch of them, there's nothing you can do, but I guess it's better that you could go through that kind of fauna for that time frame for North Carolina, rather than being in the Pacific Northwest and having to like tread through like, you know, waist high ferns and mm. shit like that. Oh yeah. You just, just imagine you're soaked right off the get. Oh you yeah. Know what I mean, yep. Oh yeah. Damn, um, but then damn, again, you were, you were up there. In, yeah, in, I was <laughs> in, in the Northwest, in the Northwest, you know, yeah, it's, it's wet, but you know, you could have blue skies in North Carolina in the summer, and because of the humidity, you're still soaking wet. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like I remember back in those days. Uh, you know, you'd throw on throw on a, a nice dry uniform, and in five minutes, it was you know your brown t-shirt was wet. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, all yeah. right, yeah. no sense in ironing and pressing this thing, or you know. So I, I, I'm interested now because uh, I know you joined, um, you know, in the early 90s and then went to the Q course and everything in the early 90s. Um, 
there was kind of a lull for a while there. Um, so I know you go through a lot of training and, and well, I guess for you guys, you do a lot of different support missions globally. And yeah. SF is known as, you know, a force multiplier and you guys are constantly doing something, engaging with foreign forces with, you know, uh-huh. and, and things like that. So, you know, prior to nine 11, um, what kept you in and not deciding to, okay, I've gone through Q course and now I can go ahead and get out and go to school. Um, so, okay. This is a uh, kind of a weird one. Um, anyways. All right. So, um, militarily, um, you know, it was the Clinton era and because he was a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, he used the word, you know, peacekeeping instead of war for the former Yugoslavian stuff, even mm-hmm. though in the early days, you know, our teams were there um, doing cast close air support missions and whatnot. And in 99, during a uh, peacekeeping rotation, you know, we, we lived in team houses, so we didn't live on a FOB. Uh, we lived in communities um, and we just, you know, had um, low vis equipment and vehicles and whatnot. And we, uh, we lost um, my, one of my, my combo guy on the team. Um, we were doing two man patrols and we were working with Russians. And one of the, uh, um, these Russians were tweaked, man, because they had just got back from, uh, Chechnya. Mm-hmm. And so these guys had serious PTSD. And um, anyways, uh, they had this outpost and they were terrible about taking care of their guys at the outposts, you know, um, and they would li- literally bring them, you know, uh, some bread, some salami and some vodka kind of thing um, for their meals. And so we're so so uh, Joyce Ponzik, who died uh, in a uh, former ECK ambush that was it was intended for the Russians because Russians then hated each other. Um, but unfortunately, they had planned on initiating this ambush with um, anti tank mines in the road and then they'd line the sides of the road with anti personnel mines. Mm. So, our uh, our vehicle went through there instead of you know a Russian BMP or BRDM, and so, um uh, we'd hit it, Joey, Joey and Doran hit it and, uh, their vehicle, it was double stacked AT mines and their, their vehicle, I've got p- pictures of it. You know, it flipped, um, it was blown forward. It flipped upside down about, I think it was about 50 meters, 50, 50 yards away. Jeez. Um, and when mm. it came down, it came down on its hood and, it was facing, you know, so now it's facing the way that it had come from. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a, you know, a fire team of guys out there um, with AKs that were going to take out all the Russians. And um, Doran, who survived, he got out and, you know, he, he, you know, he uh, his bell was rung and he wasn't sure which direction to go. Um, there was the... Uh, army MPs were located if you went in one direction um, 
further away than the Russians that were closer mm -hmm. if you went the other direction. So his plan was to go to the Russians. And we had developed, you know, severe, uh, significant rapport with these guys, man. Like I told you, they were tweaked. So anyways, yeah, missions like that um, um, were very active to us. Uh, even though the world was told there were peacekeeping missions, um, someone forgot to tell the bad guys that. Uh, and um, the, uh, you know, the time period, I guess, going uh, through the Q course. So stuff like that kept me busy. And the guys that I served with, um, I couldn't imagine working you know, a job with guys that weren't, that weren't like these guys, you know, these mm -hmm. guys, they were, you know, they were all in kind of guys. And so anyways, um, while I was going through the Q course, my wife is German and in Germany, all the, the attics, you know, the, every, every floor of every house is made of concrete. Well, she gets to the States and we're, you know, outside for Bragg and, the um, ceilings are made out of sheetrock. So she goes up, I'm in the Q course, I'm going through, you know, uh, I'm starting phase one of the Q course. So selection is done. We're now going into the land nav patrolling, you know, um, phase of training. And uh, uh, I'm sitting in this classroom, I'm trying to be the gray man. Um, it's funny because I'm, um, I'm so, uh, uh, let's, let's just say, you know, I, I, I can, I can be the gray man for probably five minutes and then, <laughs> and then it's out of, you know, cats out of the bag. I'm not a gray man. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, I'm sitting in this classroom trying to be the gray man, you know, and, and there's like, it, it was an auditorium and there was like, you know, I would say 300 plus guys. Uh, waiting to go out, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the admin stuff real quick. You know, we're not, we're getting our field meal cards. We're getting, um, you know, uh, making sure that all our documentation is right and our packing lists are correct and we're being broken into our teams. Um, and so this guy comes into the back of the auditorium man, interrupts the guy on stage and he says, Hey, is there a Sergeant Adams here? And I was like, shit, I didn't even make it five minutes. You know what I mean? So, you know, I raised my hand and I said, yeah, it's me. And he, yeah, uh, he comes down, you know, and says, uh, I need you to come with me. There's been an accident. And I was like, what? Hmm. I didn't do anything wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. so anyways, um, I hop in with them military, you know, one of the military, you know, 12 pack vans or something like that and uh they take me to womack hospital womack army, army hospital for brag there mm -hmm. and they get me there and there's literally no one there i know i'm like they just brought me here dropped me off and i don't know why i'm at a hospital i'm i'm, I'm feeling i feel fine you know i'm ready to go out to phase one what's going on and about five minutes later, an ambulance shows up and they've got my wife on mm -hmm. the back of the ambulance and she had completely shattered uh, her lower lumbar. Um, I mean, this, this, this was 
this was like looking, you know, if you look at a lateral x-ray of a spine, mm-hmm. it looks like a bunch of beer cans lined up, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So it was like beer can, beer can, beer can, nothing but splinters on the x-ray machine. Jeez. I mean, just completely shattered and then beer can, beer can. So um, all the, the staff there at Womack, all they knew was I was a special forces qualification course student. That's all they knew. Um, they didn't know that I hadn't had any medical training yet, right? Mm-hmm. They just knew that I was going through the course to be a medic. And so um, the ambulance shows up. They've got my wife rushed. Ru- they ru- rushed my wife into the ER and, you know, they've got full longboard uh, spinal immobilization going on. I, at the time, I didn't know what that was. You know, it was, they've got to really ratchet it down. That's what I was thinking, right? <laughs> so uh, I see I see him uh, run her into the ER and they're cutting off her clothes and i'm like I'm like these guys are seeing my wife naked that's bs you know <laughs> and um this is just because i didn't know you know exposing the patient was you know part of medical care anyways uh um they closed the door they're working on her and um then i stopped then i start flipping out and i'm like where's my son you know my three-year-old son um, who ended up, you know, later on, uh, going to, uh, Alpha Company, first range of diet. Um, so he was only three at the time. And, uh, I think, yeah, I, I included one of those pictures with you guys, yep. um, of him. Anyways, uh, my, a buddy of mine from the 82nd Airborne shows up with my son later. So special forces as an organization had me at the hospital before the ambulance that even showed up. One, yeah. Um, Two, um, one of my bros um, who was in, you know, uh, airborne unit, uh, he he showed up with my son. And so now they're in the operating room and I'm sitting out there waiting and I'm like, okay, good. I got my son. And so I go up to the the counter because, you know, there's um, back then there was Champus and uh, but it was the healthcare program before TRICARE, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for the military. And so the military had just gone over to TRICARE and coming from Europe, uh, it was one of these things where it was like, uh, I went up to the counter. There's a, there was a female specialist there. I thought she was going to give me nothing but attitude. I had all my defenses up and I, you know, I just went up to her and I said, you know, excuse me, specialist. Um, I have to fill out this paperwork um but i don't know how to fill it out because we just got here from germany we're on campus still and we don't have tricare Mm -hmm. and this female specialist um she says to me don't you worry about anything i'll fill it all out for you i'll do all the paperwork for you uh you focus on your son wow and i was like wow thank you so much um why are you doing this for me and she said, oh, my husband's uh, special forces. He's a phase one instructor. And she said, uh, in SF, we take care of our own. So um, two hours go by, two hours go by. Um, they come out. Doc says, hey, I don't know how your AMP, how, how you know, up you are on your AMP. And I'm like, AMP, what is that? I didn't learn later until later that meant anatomy and physiology. Like he was asking, you know, I don't know how much you remember about, you know, the names and structures of the body. So 
I'm not sure uh, where you're at on your AMP, but uh, we're, we have to send your wife up to Duke University. Mm-hmm. And the medic, the paramedics that had brought her in, um, I had heard them talking um, outside uh, the waiting room that that was, you know, that was their last call of the day. Um, and then they turn around and volunteer to take my wife up to Duke. And I, you know, I asked myself, hey, I'm sorry, I, I thought I overheard you guys say that was your, your guys' last call. They're like, yeah, well, you know, we're former SF medics, man. SF, we take care of our own. Wow. I know. I was like, dude. That's crazy. I'm, I'm, like, in, I, I'm like in serious debt to special forces already, right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know North Carolina yet. I'm going up to Duke University. It's dark out. I'm just following a freaking ambulance. And um, I don't know the meaning of Duke. I don't know that their medical program is world-class. I don't know any of this yet, right? So anyways, I get up there. Um, I follow the ambulance to the emergency room. The paramedic had actually called in route up there and told me, you know, gave me an update status of my wife. She's doing good. And he was going to... He was going to uh, put the phone to her ear so that she could talk to me and I could talk to her and she could talk to her son mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, her son was fine. And I thought, man, this guy's going out, way out of his way, you know, for us. That's pretty cool. So anyways, uh, fast forward that night, you know, to 3 a.m. And son's sleeping on my sleeping on my lap in the waiting room. And this PA comes out, this physician assistant, and he's like, uh, yeah, is there Mr. Adams out here? I was like, yeah, that's me. And he goes, once again, you know, same thing. He goes, hey, I don't know how uh, how up you are on your AMP, but you know, it's you can take a look at your wife's X-ray. It's pretty obvious that she's going to be spending a few months here. Jeez. And he said, uh, he said, I talked to my wife, and our uh, we have a three-year-old son as well, and um, she agreed. Um, you know, the, the hospital food here gets pretty bland. So, uh, you guys are more than free to come and stay with us. And to this day, that was my only regret about that whole scenario was not taking him up on that offer because I would have been honoring him doing that. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. but at the time I was like, stranger danger, you know what I mean? Like, who's this guy? <laughs> I don't know. Inviting me to his house. And I don't even, you know, first I see my, my wife way naked out. and now they I want me to go to the house. I don't even know my way out of the parking lot. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Yeah. And I, I, I said, uh, you know, thank you. Uh, but you know, um, I don't, I don't even know you. Why are you doing this for me or offering this to me? And he goes, Oh, I was a special forces medic, man. SF, we take care of our own. I'm like, Oh man. <laughs> so, uh, uh, three months go by of me, you know, I had I had saved up. I think we had like ten thousand dollars in savings, right? And I blasted through all of that on you know um, motel sixes, certain mm-hmm. um, you know whatever the local motels were. Uh, me and my son staying at night, and you know when visiting hours would open in the morning uh, until visiting hours were over, we would just sit by her bedside. And I called up, you know, um, I notified the special forces training, um, a battalion 
and talked to who was my first sergeant. And he said, he said, you listen to me. Your focus is on your family. That's it. I want you to call me periodically uh, to let me know you're alive. But don't worry about the, the school. Don't worry about anything else. You just take care of your family. I was like, wow. Okay. Um, in the military, they probably would have made me, you know, show up at a Monday morning formation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Max gave me two weeks off or something. But in SF, they didn't care. So three months, I'm, I'm, I'm doing nothing but changing my wife's bedpans. She's obviously immobilized from her head on down. Uh, she had three eight-hour surgeries to kind of save her spine. Um, and they did, uh, remarkably. Um, during that time period, there were several kids from the 82nd who had parachute um, malfunctions who were there for the same reason, spinal fractures. So these guys were really top-notch, knew what they were doing. And uh, the guy that runs the course, man, he uh, the first sergeant, um, I get out of the hospital. My wife's in this weird kind of casting. It starts at her neck, and it's this fiberglass molded body cast thing mm-hmm. that, that goes down like the front and back of her, and it's held on with Velcro straps so she can't move, right? And so she's at home, but she's in bed, and so I'm you know, bringing her food and whatnot in bed and um, you know, just nursing her. And this, my first sergeant called me up and said, hey, Got another course starting up in a couple of weeks. You want in? And I told him, I said, because hey, yeah. I, I, I was sick of, you know, just playing nurse. And uh, I said, yeah, I really want, I really want in, but you know, my circumstance. He goes, I already thought of that. He goes, my wife is a registered nurse at Cape Fear. And if you go to this, uh, if you want to go to this next phase one, she's agreed to come to your house twice a day to change your wife's dressings and to, uh, you know, spend a little time there just talking to her giving her girl to girl talk. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so now I remember I'm thinking back to this stranger danger guy and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take this guy up in his office. I said, yes. And I went, you know, from hitting, hitting that, uh, phase one, um, portion of the Q course getting through the rest, man. Um, you know, I was already deeply indebted to special forces because of the care that they take care of my family. So, uh, you know, I, I went through zero recycles, zero failures, uh, went completely through the course. Um, my wife had healed up and she was able to you know, stand and walk and wear a nice dress to the special force graduation. Mm, wow. And then immediately after that, it was like, hey, you know, you're on 10th group you're at 10th group and then it's like, boom, you're, you're on the Kosovo rotation. Um, oh yeah. Before that you're on a mountain team and you are, uh, going to the mountain course. And this was like, a this was like an eight week long mountain leaders course that was, well, you know, it's a special forces leader course. So, it for mountaineering so there's nothing that they didn't cover uh and as far as the amount of climbs and the amount of uh reps and sets we had to do you know we started it most of our climbing was in colorado 
and then we uh, jumped into Fort Lewis and uh, we summited Rainier. So we spent a lot of time yeah. there doing crevasse rescue and all our ice work and stuff there. As soon as we got home with that, it's like, all right, pack your stuff up. Now it's close to time. And, you know, um, ended up you know, over the years um, in varying lengths of time, whether it was for you know, small specific missions I was going there for, or if it was for working with foreign countries. So the trip size is really varied, but I ended up being there. Bosnia three times, Kosovo three times, um, doing the things that we do. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's just crazy though and to so hear. That, that's, that's what kept, kept me going through the 9-11 period. That's a very long way of saying it, isn't it? It's just... Uh... No, but there's so much in there about how many, you know, people that were like, oh, special forces, we take care of our own. Like how many times do you hear that, you know, within 24 hours and then, you know, people wanting yeah. to help you out just out of nowhere. I think it's such a cool thing. And I can understand your, your desire to pay it forward and like, yep, to, to want to continue to serve with that unit, especially when so many other people have helped you, not just in a professional way, but in a per personal way. Mm-hmm. And to make sure you and your family yeah. are right. Yeah, and that woman's, you know, she's right out there in the other room. <laughs> yeah. Basically, if a stranger offers you candy once, you say no. If they offer a second time, you say yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, I'll get it. I'll, you know. All right, I'll take all right, the I'll Skittles. Get, I'll, I'll come. I'll get into your, your black panel band. <laughs> that's a crazy yeah, that's story. An, yeah, that's incredible. So how is she? Obviously, it's much later now, but like is she you know yeah still in discomfort with certain things with her back or is it kind of like a full recovery she can do a lot of things now um yeah she can do man i mean she'll she works out like for an hour a day with me at the gym um so there is nothing holding her back her mm -hmm. so they basically put these two hook shaped metal clamps on the vertebrae above and below the fracture site and they put these two rods in on each side they, and they bolt, you know, they, they're screwed in with these titanium bolts. And so they basically bridge the gap. Mm. Um, mm. So they, you know, separate the spine, bridge that gap. And then they took uh, sections of her hip and used that to bone graft in that space. Oh, okay. So over the years, you know, um, the bone itself has, uh, you know, it's grown around the spinal cord mm -hmm. and the spinal column, and there's no impingements or anything like that on there. And her her back muscles, um, you know, had uh, kind of recalibrated and reformed themselves around that surgical site. And so now she's, she's fine. Interestingly enough, um, you know, since then, in the last, well, it's it's been two years. She just recovered from uh, a brain tumor, mm. and so, mm. um, yeah, that was a whole other interesting thing. Man, that woman's know? been um, through a lot. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, she, yeah, she has. You know, they say, you know, for us guys in the military, you know, there's a lot of people out there. Thank you for your service. This side or the other. Um, we don't think about the wives, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Not nearly and enough. all the stuff. 
all the stuff we put them through. I'm like, Oh my gosh, man. You know, and with PTSD, the way it is, uh, in today's military and you know, my efforts, uh, these days, um, working with the PTSD foundation and other foundations, uh, to try to end that, um, you know, a lot of people don't think about secondary PTSD and that's, that's what we call the PTSD that the soldier or the service member gives to their family yep. mm-hmm. when they come home and that family, you know, they're stuck behind closed doors at home with this guy who's got all this stuff in his head. And, um, you know, that, uh, you know, smile, um, you know, put on your best face, go out into the world and act like, you know, your husband's a hero and everything, and then go home and, um, have to deal with that trauma, uh, that he's living with and he's forcing you to go through. Yeah. So our, my wife and most of, you know, the wives that I know, you know, I can't say enough about them. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish, I wish there was like a, um, you know, global war on terror, uh, wives award for valor yeah, you know, yeah. kind of thing, thing they could get because they certainly earned it. Yeah. It's, uh, um, we, we've talked about that. I think on here a few times is, is, um, you know, I can't thank my wife enough and I, I honestly have no idea how she put up with all the training and deployments and everything that I had to go through. Like, uh, I like the military by far saw me, you know, probably 90% of the time. My wife saw me 10% of the time, you know, while I was saying, yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure it was a lot of the same for you. And it's a lot of the same for a lot of people, especially in the special operations world. It's, it's, I don't know how (laughs) they hang on. We actually, I I, like funny story, but we, we truthfully tried getting my wife to come on this podcast because Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to her about that (laughs) and, uh, she won't do it. She's like, nope. But like, I think it would be incredibly um, insightful for a lot of people to understand that side of it and understand like what spouses have to go through and, you know, deal with. And especially when you have kids and you have other family members or other things in the background that are happening, you know, especially Mm -hmm. during combat rotations and stuff like that, that you just you don't hear about it. It's not necessarily in movies very often. Yeah. You know, and I think that. I think you just came up with your second book, man. We've talked about it. Yeah, uh, we have discussed yeah. it multiple times about how, uh, you know, whether whether it be um, Gold Star families, nobody's hit on it. Yeah, no. Gold Star families, nobody's or, hit on it, or spouses, because again, it's another story that people don't hear, and it, it does need to yeah. be told. The Twenty Year War Volume Two Spouse Edition. No, I'm, <laughs> I, honestly, and. Yeah. And it's to show gratitude for everything that they've done and had to put up with, mm-hmm. you know, th- through yeah. such a lengthy, um, such a lengthy war. Yeah. And how many lives and families it's impacted. Yeah. And generations of families. Yeah. In the same war. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, since we kind of were transitioning to that, so you were in, uh, intense group, um, and then, you know, you were doing a lot of those European deployments and, and things like that, um, other mm-hmm. foreign force, force engagements and things. 
where were you or can you can you recall or can you say i guess where you were during 9 11 and and how did that kind of impact you especially after you've been in for i guess 10 years now by that point yeah so uh i um we were um we we're doing a jump master course um for those that don't know that is a course so Jump masters are the guys responsible for the safety of all the, the guys with parachutes. They're responsible for the safety of them in the aircraft and on exiting the aircraft. Um, and so it's a, um, it's a, it's an important role to have inside the aircraft. Mm -hmm. We were having a jump master course. I was in it and our aircraft got grounded. Mm. Like, what's going on? And, um, the, they briefly told us that, you know, all air tra travel, uh, military and civilian, and we didn't know the whole story. So we took off our, uh, our parachutes and our kit, went back to the team room and turned on Fox news. And that's where we saw, um, the first, the first tower, um, smoking, and we watched the second plane fly into the second tower. Mm. So, um, like most guys, you know, uh, in our team room, in most team rooms, you know, we were all, you know, uh, jocking up, getting our kid on, ready to go, uh, waiting on the call. And um, being that, you know, we had identified it was Afghanistan, being 10th group, uh, we, and being a mountain team, uh, we, we were certain it was going to be us. Mm -hmm. And so we were put on a short string, you know, uh, be ready to go at any minute kind of thing. And, um, pissed us off that they had sent third and fifth group instead of us. And we're like, we trained those mountain teams. You know what I mean? Like, it was just this frustration. So anyways, um, you know, our, our, our guys, uh, some of our 10th guys, actually, this, this sucks, man. Having to go there to the other groups, make sure that they're trained up so that they can deploy. How frustrating is that, right? Fuck like, yeah, I'd be annoyed. <laughs> oh, man. It was like, I was, so anyways. Um, they ended up doing a great job and, uh, you know, I couldn't be prouder of them. Um, the, uh, first time 10th group, we got into Iraq was in March of 2003. Mm -hmm. It was called, um, uh, our infill, the infill, you guys can look it up online. It's called Operation Ugly Baby. Um, we were, um, it was, it was the most harrowing infill experience, um, in the, in, in two categories in the history of the air force, um, with regard to the amount of damage that our aircraft took from anti-aircraft fire and, and rockets and stuff. And, uh, uh, just how, you know, amazed I am at that 
C-130. You know, we were flying the special operations versions. So we had what's called shadows and talons. Mm -hmm. They're these special operations types of C-130s. But the pilots on those things, man, they're flying like they were yeah, at points they were flying at, you know, 50, 50 feet AGL a couple times. Um, the aircraft had hit hard. Um, as it turned out, it was, they had hit sand dunes. Um, the uh, uh, aircraft uh, several times had had us pinned to the ceiling of the aircraft and then would slam us to the floor. There's grenades rolling around. Everybody's vomiting and like, shit, welcome to combat kind of thing, right? Um, and, uh, so operation ugly baby, um, the, we were, I was in the third bird to take off from Jordan. We, we kept trying to fly over Turkey. Turkey kept sending F-16s up to us. Uh, so they said, you know, uh, F you were going South to Jordan, went to Jordan and then we flew directly over Sam alley or surface air missile alley right across Iraq's best, you know, air defense, uh, uh, corridor and, uh, um, our, uh, our pilots, they, uh, they got us through. We, I was the third bird to take off in a six bird stack, uh, tail number three, one, two, uh, three, one, two, one, two. And, um, I just remember looking at it. It was weird because it was three, one, two, one, two. And it was also March 22nd, you know, it was like 322, 31212. Hmm, and so um, that bird had later been retired, uh, I found out. And um, we, uh, um, we were the third bird to take off, but we we're the first bird to land. The bird in front of us had one of its engines blown out um, outside our bird. So we have the, the birds, they have what's called chafe and flares. Right. And what this is designed to do is to kind of confuse enemy aircraft or anti-aircraft missiles. So we had um, not just, you know, a string of tracer fire coming at us. I had a guy sitting across the aircraft from me and he yells over and he's like, he's like, you know, hey, asshole, your strobe's on, turn it off. And I'm like, I'm looking all over myself. And then I look down at my kit and I put my nods on my strobe's not on. So I look out the portal window and I should not have done that um, because it was nothing but tracer fire coming at us. And I turned around and I, you know, I said the same, you know, or I probably chose another four letter word. <laughs> and I just said, that's not my, that's not my strobe. Those are tracers. And uh, um, we had missiles inbound missiles lock on three times. Um, and it looks like, you know, it looks like a telephone pole coming at you from the ground. It's weird seeing it from that side. But anyways, our aircraft went through all its chafing flares and it did its job. It saved us. Um, the pilots are really what saved us. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I remember feeling so hopeless or helpless. Sorry. I remember feeling so helpless. I'm like, I have all this training. I put in all these hours, all these guys did so much for me, my family, blah, 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 blah. And I'm stuck back here in the back of this taxi and I can't shoot back. It was the most frustrating, you know, experience you could imagine. So we had landed north in Al-Sulamania with the Kurds. And this was a funny story. Um, this was uh, 
we have pilot teams that go in ahead of us to coordinate us getting on the ground, right? Well, um, word didn't, didn't get down to, you know, the guys on the teams that the Kurds that we were working with were going to be there uh, to protect us, right? Basically protect the aircraft as we were downloading it. So we get off and we see all these Muslim looking guys with AKs, RPGs and stuff like that. And we're pissed already. And it was, you know, it was like, okay, <laughs> what, what's going on here? You know, we're at the low ready with our guns and these guys, we look at them and their backs are to us. And, you know, you quickly realize, you know, you're shaking this off and you quickly realize these guys are protecting us. Okay. Okay, cool. Just go with it. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. we're running back and forth to the aircraft. Half of us are pulling security. Half of us are grabbing gear and, you know, uh, you know, picking up frags and stuff that were rolling around on the ground. And I go back and, you know, the, this crew chief comes up to me, grabs by his shoulders. And he's like, for God's sakes, man, be careful out there. I look at him. I said, me, bro, you got to fly back through that shit. <laughs> Jeez. And, it, you know, as it, as it turned out, um, they didn't have to. Uh, thankfully, um, they were allowed to go back into Turkish airspace to enter Lake because they were no longer carrying combat troops. Mm -hmm. Turkey would not let them fly over because they were carrying combat troops. Now that they downloaded us, you know, yeah, you're welcome back. So, they were able to fly directly north Such a weird to Turkey. Mm -hmm. it, it's crazy too because we have uh, we have a gunship pilot in our book, and mm -hmm. uh, he was talking about it. And it's in a strange way, it's so pretty when those gunships let out their flares, the angel of death, where they just all start to come yeah. out of the back. But he was just telling us some yeah. stories about it, and I'm wondering if he was during that time frame. I believe he was, and he was flying around in the Talon too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, you know in the back. Um, when the chafe and the flares are going on, you don't know if that's incoming or outgoing, right? Mm -hmm. Until the crew chiefs are running around yelling, check for holes. And I remember, you know, I was uh, death gripping, you know, the fuselage, um, you know, some inside skeletal uh, aluminum portion of the aircraft. And, you know, because one leg, one minute my legs are in the air, the next minute I'm slamming the ground trying to hold uh, as best as possible. Um, note self, good AAR comment. Um, have, next time I do an Operation Ugly Baby, uh, have an aircraft tie down strap, right? Mm -hmm. And make sure that I'm secured to the ground. Um, I didn't. And that was a mistake. <laughs> uh, I ended up getting pretty pinged around like you know a set of combat boots in the dryer um that's what it felt like but crew chief yelling check for holes and i'm like you know well shit what are we gonna do cover them up cover them up with 100 mile an hour tape uh, that's, that's literally what i what I asked my teammate next to me like uh, we're gonna have to go below, we're gonna have to go below 100 mile an hour so the tape will stay you know <laughs> <laughs> you know the weird kind of shit you, you you joke about while all this is going on it's uh kind of funny that's um, insane I, I i feel like i i gotta give a little bit of context too because the those uh c-130s the town twos especially are like 
you would think when you're in one that it's a fighter jet because their their ability to change angles and just gain elevation and drop and do all these crazy things is incredible like i remember uh, multiple times we would have to do they call it map of the earth which i'm guessing that's exactly what they were doing where more or less they're trying to match the terrain so everywhere there's a hill they're trying to keep their um they're above ground level so their distance ground to aircraft the same how many feet are they staying above that typically well that one was very low you said about 50 there are times, yeah, uh, Fuck, 50 feet. There's times where we made inadvertent contact, but I think, I think most of the most of the writing that I've read on that uh, infill was between 150 feet AGL yeah. and 300 feet AGL. Yeah, and I think that's about so, accurate what they try and keep for the map of the for Earth. that big of a plane. That's yeah. insane, dude. I'm telling you, they yeah. they are incredibly agile. Just to the ability and and. I don't know what the mountains are like up there, but in Afghanistan, we would literally, I mean, you're in parts of the Himalayas, so (laughs) you're literally flying up the side of a mountain and then dropping down off the backside and, you know, carving through different um, ravines and everything like that. Like it's, you know, fucking throw up. I was going to say, I know, granted, I didn't get thrown to the ceiling and to the floor. But uh, I've been in the situation at least where everybody around me is like starting to puke and freak out and stuff. Granted, we were not getting surface air missiles and all that kind of stuff. But uh, well, that's I, crazy. I have, I, have a, I have a cool picture of the uh, um, the cockpit glass. Actually, it's a uh, it's armored glass and it's in proximity to the pilot's feet, right? Mm-hmm. And this is you know, to kind of help them land whatever see the ground below them um but it was just shattered man this glass was just filled with bullet holes and you you gotta share that with us if you can like wow you know i can't believe that this you know they flew they literally these pilots literally flew the rivets off this aircraft um i was wondering you know the only thing that was holding this aircraft together was hope and prayer um and that pilot's ability to you know feel that aircraft feedback you know flying by the seat of his pants Mm -hmm. um in essence because we were all blacked out you know no lights nothing um no interior lights even i mean it was complete blackout and um he was still still able to accomplish things that they had done so um kudos yeah kudos to those guys big time hats off to them i'm I'm sure that's why they're hitting sand dunes too because like even if you're flying under nods and stuff the reflection and everything off the sand it all looks the same and mm-hmm. it comes a lot faster at you than a lot of people would realize and so i can see oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> definitely so i want to you know, there's a there's a, there's a loss of depth perception you know um speaking of that you know in 2005 we were doing um uh, I believe it was October 2005. Uh, we were doing um, working with the task force in Iraq, and we were in Blackhawks. Um, we're do- going to you know hit a target for the evening, and uh, we're about we're doing about 120 knots, and we're about 200. 200 meters 
above the ground and AGL. And uh, one of our guys in the aircraft, one of our assaulters in the aircraft, uh, solid um, leader, he had, for whatever reason, he, he looked out the window and because of the, you couldn't tell the difference in the sand and the depth and there was no depth perception or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So he unclipped his aircraft, aircraft tie down strap and just walked right off the plant, the Blackhawk. Mm -hmm. And he fell 200 meters oh, at shit. over 120 miles an hour and was dead on impact. And, um, you know, this is one of our officers and we have very, very few officers operationally uh, in a, in, in a tactical perspective on the ground. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, we had landed the rest of the, the other aircraft and, um, you know, we formed a perimeter of security and, uh, got medevac aircraft in and then got recovery aircraft in because, you know, of the technology that's on these birds, they either got to be destroyed in place or, uh, they got to be, um flown back right mm -hmm. so they, they opted on a recovery crew for this thing well anyways um you know kind of keeping with our mindset in our mission this what we you know as soon as the aircraft were gone things were quiet again you know we were eight kilometers away from our target so you know our bad guy you know we didn't call him out and say we're going to come get you tonight so he was still in play we still had a few hours of darkness left. So we just got, you know, uh, got back into our formation order and movement, our lead element, you know, that was responsible for navigation up front, started leading us out. And uh, we went and brought the smack down on that target that night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every year uh, we do a golf tournament for that, for that guy. Jeff Tozlowski is his name, and we call it the Taz the Taz Memorial um, Golf Tournament. And yeah, so that's crazy. He was a sniper. He was a sniper team leader. You know, it, it's it it honestly is not that common. I think I know um, a few people around my time who I don't think they did it when the aircraft were moving, but they definitely jumped off the skids of a bird or tried to jump out of a Blackhawk before it fully touched down. Cause sometimes, especially when, um, when you're about to land, the bird pitches really hard, especially mm -hmm. if you're landing mm -hmm. close to the objective, it pitches really hard and then it'll come down. Yeah. And that initial pitch, he thought that it it's was, down. it was down, but it wasn't and he unclipped and jumped and he fell like a hundred, but probably about a hundred meters or so. Jeez. So we, yeah, I've heard numerous stories of same sort of thing happening and they, they changed up a lot of training, at least for us within uh, Ranger regiment. Um, and this was, I mean, I, I feel like they should have had this training probably by that point, but, uh, like I became a fire. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and you know, this was, this is what mandated that training, you mm -hmm. know, for all future task force rotations. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, very unfortunate um and it just sucked the way it happened you know yeah. what i mean i mean we all wanted the goal everyone everyone's vision right is to go out in the field of battle 
um, waist deep um, in empty brass with, you know, a beat up gun and a dull knife blade because you have completely used everything up and um, to, to be robbed of that, you know, kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go into, um, to kind of go forward from that and and to talk more about, you know, you, you lightly touched on it earlier, but with working with the, you know, PTSD support group, can you explain a little more about that and what, you know, brought you into working with that organization? Yeah. Well, um, so when I had gotten out, um, I went through, you know, I call it, you know, now that I've, I've worked with the PTSD support group, uh, uh, I've, I've become the state outreach mentor for the state of Colorado. Um, and I've been working with that for three years. Mm-hmm. The reason for that, the initiation of that started with, uh, one, um, my nephew, uh, committed suicide mm-hmm. and, in the special operations community, it was, it, it, it's, it's still really frowned upon and looked at his weakness. Um, when guys commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really struck home with me with my nephew. You know, he wasn't special operations. He wasn't airborne infantry. He was a truck driver. And the reason he was a truck driver, get this, right? He calls me up before he joins and I'm like, Hey, He's like, what, what should I be when I join? And I said, you want to join Airborne Infantry Option 40 Ranger Package. Nothing else. I said, if you love me, if you trust me, that's what you go with. And he ended up becoming a truck driver. I'm like, and I'm thinking, why? Well, his dad was a truck driver in Vietnam. And his, he had a rocky relationship with his dad. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to, you know, do a job that his dad did mm-hmm. to... You know, he's always trying to earn his dad's respect. Yeah. And so anyways, he becomes a truck driver. And then, and then on top of that, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, driving the refueler. And so if you're uh, in Iraq and he was on a 15 month um, deployment, Jeez. Um, ridiculous. I know. Um, but he was like, you know, Hey, I want to drive the refueler. And, with all the IEDs that were blowing up our convoys and stuff, that would probably be the vehicle that I would aim for. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So he had some significant PTSD, got home, committed suicide. That was the second, that was the second visit, you know, for me back to Spokane, Washington, since I've joined was to go speak for him on his behalf at the funeral. Um, then I, you know, I get back to Colorado and, uh, you know, a guy invites me to, uh, uh, you know, uh, abs hockey game. And, uh, there's this other veteran there who runs a nonprofit called hot rod warriors. Um, his name is Justin Patterson. And, uh, Justin had, a, has a great story, uh, in his own right. Um, him and I hit it off. So I go, he goes, yeah, I do this nonprofit thing, man. You know, we work on cars, create horsepower. It's a clean, safe environment for, you know, vets to come, um, hang out with other combat vets. It's like, cool, I man. Let that sticker on your car. Yeah. So anyways, while I'm there, there's another guy there, this Marine kid. And, uh, he, uh, he is the outreach mentor for the PTSD foundation of America. 
and I, you know, I'm like, Hey man, that's really noble. You know, and I, I like their mission statement and I like what they do for all these vets. And, you know, back in like Oh nine, I think they got donated like five acres or something outside of Houston. And they turned that into this campus um, that, that the, the, my pillow guy um, mm. and other guys like him, um, you know, donated free furniture, free bedding, everything, 84 beds for combat vets with PTSD. Right. Wow. And these are, these are not guys who are malingerers trying to get, you know, PTSD rating uh, disability so they can get paid for it. These are guys who are coming from jail or whatever, and they're having a really hard time in life. Right. So uh, um, they, they had this campus, this guy, this Marine that I met at this hot rod warriors. Uh, he, um, he was, he had, he had caregiver fatigue and I didn't know at the time, at the time what that was since then I've had it three times, uh, but caregiver fatigue is, um, when you care more about a suicidal veteran than they care about themselves, uh, you as a caregiver are pouring everything in your heart and soul and to save this person. Um, but you know, you can't push a wet noodle. Mm -hmm. You can't help a guy unless he wants to help himself. Right. So, um, you know, that's a lesson that you have to learn on your own. So he, he had, he was burnt out and I met him that night. Later we went, I think a few days later to breakfast together. And then, uh, we went to another, you know, uh, group support group meeting and he, he asked me, you know, he had been kind of checking me out and uh, seeing where my heart was and whatnot. And he said, would you, would you mind replacing me? And, you know, without giving it much thought, I said, sure, I'll replace you. So I actually uh, volunteered to replace him. They flew me down to Camp Hope for a week. Can you imagine interviewing for a week? Right. But during that week, what they were doing was, you know, they're looking at everything in me, you know, my family circumstances, my financials. They were making sure that as a, as a peer mentor that I was solid. Right. And so. Uh, um, during that week, you know, in between interviews and processes and paperwork and whatnot, um, I was going through all the training that the veterans were going through they were in the, in the schoolhouse they were or not the schoolhouse but they were in the uh, treatment plan and so um they had they have uh the, these four phases that they go through the first phase is called black phase and that's where you know the veteran comes in he has to give up all his you know va prescription medications right so he hands over his piggly wiggly bag full of you know um medications or his duffel bag full of VA meds and um, his cell phone, everything. So blackface is comms black, man. You, no email, no internet, um, no phone use. Mm -hmm. And you're more importantly, you're not allowed to be alone at all during blackface. Right. So you can't, you live, you live in a little, uh, we call them pods, but they're like eight man apartments with four rooms. And so you have your roommate and you have one common area, one little kitchen and a living room area with a TV in there. And all this is donated. And um, 
if your team did a good job that week, you know, with your community service hours and your timeliness and your, uh, you know, your exercise regimens and stuff like that, um, then you guys got to watch TV together at the end of the week. Mm. So, um, and then every night, each week, two different guys in the pod, you know, were responsible for making dinner for the rest of the pod. So you were put back into a team environment with other guys that had issues. Right. And there was, it was, it was so heartwarming to be with these guys who were, you know, uh, joking, you know, able to honestly, authentically joke with each other about all their, um, flawed mm-hmm. you know, all their mistakes all their you know uh you know hey you know what was your drug of choice you know what landed you in jail you know that kind of thing and it's just so open there it's almost like an and they AA. could not be that they couldn't be that open anywhere else there's nowhere mm-hmm. else in the world you could be that open unless your environment where everybody is coming from that background right mm-hmm. so anyways outside of those pods they have uh what's called the fire pit and uh, the fire pit is the unofficial official, I guess, um, healing ground. They call it the healing ground. They call it the place where miracles happen. But it's basically these guys sit around a fire pit. Why? Because they can't, they're not allowed to go to their rooms and be alone. Right. So they sit there initially, they get their arms crossed across their chest and they're like, Oh, this sucks. I don't want to be here. So on and so forth. But there's other guys who've been there a few weeks longer than them. who slowly started to, uh, uh, crack that shell and come out of it and open up and be able to share. And so they sit there quietly and then listen to these conversations. And that is the magic of it is these guys are healing each other. And the mentorship process is, you know, um, to be a mentor, you have to have been a combat vet. You have to have had PTSD um, so that you can, you know, walk, say that you've walked a, walk, a mile in these guys' shoes and understand what they've been through. Mm-hmm. So having been through all that and sitting by the fire and listening to these stories, the campfire, uh, it was, it was just, it was amazing. It was heartwarming. Um, you know, dudes would just, I don't know, break down crying. They would, uh, for the first time, you know, it was like the first time they, they had shown any emotion at all since, you know, coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And it was only because of the trust that the other guy sitting around that campfire had earned with them. And then, you know, a week later, new guy shows up, right? These guys now in turn pay it forward. And so, um, you know, that's the, the, that's why they call it the unofficial healing place. Um, that's why guys like me are so busy um, because as mentors, you know, the training and whatnot you receive, and that's probably maybe, you know, 20 to 24 semester hours. You know, to be a counselor, that's a master's degree, mm-hmm. right? And then once you're a counselor, once you get your degree, you've got to do like, I think, two to four years of um, ride along time with a licensed counselor uh, before you're able to start operating on your own. Well, the reason we're so busy is because these counselors went to college. They didn't go to combat. 
So how are they able to relate? Mm-hmm. And that's why we've been so busy. Um, but what we do, the magic there, the magic fix to that there is uh, we work with some wonderful counselors and physicians who actually donate, um, you know, uh, one weekend a month of their time, or let's say two days a month of their time to the PTSD foundation. And yeah, they get, they get a tax write off for it, whatever, but you know, the real benefit goes to the veteran because Mm -hmm. they're getting world-class treatment for free out of Houston, um, from these guys who are giving back. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, you know, I didn't know this about Houston, man. Houston has a, has an awesome veteran mentality toward taking care of its vets. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like everywhere you go, you know, everywhere you go, there's always a purple heart parking or veteran only parking, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's just amazing, you know, uh, state park access, access, you know, free fishing, all that kind of stuff. They really take care of their vets there. So, you know, everybody's question is, well, why don't you have a camp open Colorado? Or why isn't there one in North Carolina or so on and so forth? Well, I'm, I thought the same thing. And to be honest, guys, we don't, we don't want one. I don't think anybody wants one. Mm. Um, once you know what's going on, because so oftentimes for that veteran, you know, their work, their community and their family, even those are the triggers right so for the guys that go to camp hope that are from the houston area right they might have a drug dealer or an ex-girlfriend or something like that drive up to to camp and try to get access to their husband their boyfriend Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. client whatever and so the great thing for me is like you know this uh i'm the next guy i'm sending to camp hope is on monday Mm. um and um he will be away from all his triggers yep so the way it works for me is you know hey you know i have literally found a guy living in a in a rock quarry with his service dog and i didn't you know i didn't know he was living in a rock quarry initially because he was well dressed at least you know he, he was clean. He appeared clean. Right. And he had self-respect and I had met him, ran into him at the VA and, uh, I heard his story and, and you know, he was without work. He didn't have, you know, uh, a home or anything like that. So I had taken him to, in all of the, the veteran, uh, facilities that we have are in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that's where the largest veteran community is. So I'd gotten him laid on with job interviews and um, got him squared away with, you know, a suit and uh, got him internet access so that he could get applications out there and got him over to housing services where we could get him into a house. And I didn't know, you know, I still didn't know where he was staying. I didn't know he was staying in Rockport. So at the end of the day, and, you know, I'm 
you know, I'm on my own dime. I'm not being reimbursed for this or anything like that. It's just, you know, this is kind of where I'm at in life, right? I already did my, I did my time. I retired. I'm giving back. And I, I don't want to see what happened to my nephew, happen to anybody else. So anyways, he's like, well, you can just take me, drop me off at the uh, VA again. And I'm like, well, why do you need to go back there? You know, because I'm thinking I'm running this guy to ground. I am going to take care of everything for this guy so that he can sleep in peace at night, right? Um, and he's like, well, I'm, I live in the rock quarry right next to the VA. And I'm like, you what? And so I was like, no, 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 no. So me and a bunch of buddies, you know, we pitch in and we uh, get him into a hotel uh, for a few nights that allows us a service dog. And then we find a couple that have a RV vehicle uh, that they allow him to, to live in until we can get him into, you know, firm housing. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of how it is, is, is for each of these guys like this, if, you know, as a mentor, as a dude with the heart for him, it, I tell people, man, it takes a tribe for every single guy that's in that bad place. One, one guy with the big heart can't do it. He just can't do it on his own, man. Cause you'll get that caregiver fatigue and you start to become indifferent and you know, one day I had spent 18 hours trying to find a guy, 18 hours because his wife was so worried about him and suicide. And uh, she was worried about her health, uh, safety and stuff like that. So and this guy lives in the mountains and there's no cell coverage. And I'm trying to find this guy. And I know how dangerous it is, but I got to go in anyways. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to be found. Um, you know, he gets, you know gets a hold of her phone, finds out I'm coming and he just heads off into the mountains. And so 18 hours, I had my son and my wife uh, with me. And uh, finally I'd said, I'm not going to be able to find this guy today. And my wife, you know, uh, she said what any wife who is supportive of her, her husband would say, she said, well, honey, you did all you could, you know, let's just go home. Mm -hmm. And, this is this was when I got caregiver fatigue. Was I blew up on my wife and yelled at her, mm. and I said, you know, I said to her, "You don't leave a soldier on the battlefield who's wounded." And being a medic, you know, having that medic background, it was like I had this anaphylactic, allergic, like reaction to. You know, phys physiological reaction to uh, giving up on someone, right? And then, you know, after that, I realized the damage that I was doing to my wife and my children. And I was like, I just, this ain't going to cut it, man. This ain't going to cut it. I, I need help. And so, um, periodically, I got veterans, you know, that uh, will come and they'll help out until they get caregiver fatigue. And then they bow out. Um, so it's one of these things where it really takes community to take care of these guys. Mm -hmm. Um, the other big issue with like caregiver fatigue is let's say I got a suicidal guy. I find him, you know, he can barely speak a, a complete sentence. Um, not because he's drunk or he's on drugs, but sometimes that's the case, but because he's having a panic attack or an anxiety attack. And I'm, 
I, you know, I find out, you know, okay, you're, you have a forerunner and you're in a parking garage and you think you're downtown. Okay. And I'm like driving around every single parking garage trying to find this guy in the middle of the night. I finally found out to find him. And I, I have to let him know, you know, Hey, I'm approaching your vehicle. I'm going to approach your vehicle on the passenger side. Okay. And I'm going to tap three times because I know this guy's got a gun. Mm -hmm. Most guys I work with, you know, do. And I don't want to get shot. (laughs) So, uh, I tap on it. I open the passenger side door and this grown man is balled up in the fetal position. I don't know how he can do it, but he's balled up in the fetal position, hiding in the floorboard of the front passenger seat. And he's just shaking. Jeez. And, you know, there's a rule, you know, you, you, you don't bring this stuff home with you, but I took him to a check-in place, you know, 72 hour state hold where they hold you, you know, psychological suicide, uh, 72 hour requirement hold. And, um, they were, you know, they saw him and they were, you know, completely indifferent to him and didn't give a shit about him. And he had a stuttering problem and they didn't realize, they didn't recognize that that was this guy's normal. Like for a couple of years, he had been stuttering like this. So, uh, I actually had to sign paperwork saying, I will take responsibility of him. I'm not allowing him to come to this facility because I didn't trust them. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had to break a rule and I brought him home with me. Um, usually you don't want to bring something like that to your household. Right. Mm-hmm. But I did. And, um, you know, over the years I've had, I've had like three guys living in my house. Um, until finally one day my wife had said, you know, honey, the joke was, you know, it's Patch's bed and breakfast. Um, <laughs> Can uh, I come stay? <laughs> the, uh, but my, my wife was like, you know, honey, your, your son and I live here too. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel comfortable getting up in the middle of the night going to the bathroom with these other guys here. And so I was like, you're right. All right. Hey, you three, you know, your goal today is to get out of my house. So let's get out and find you lodging, right? And so um, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a facet, you know, of that caregiver fatigue that you deal with, uh, having to take a guy into your, your space to try to keep those separate, you know, for safety reasons. But uh, let's say I come up on a guy, you know, I get a call, I go to a guy, I don't, uh, I've, you know, um, let's say state trooper calls me. Um, hey, got a vet, man. And state trooper's a vet as well. Um, so he doesn't want this guy to end up in the system, right? So I go with this guy and end up staying with his vet. Um, or let's say a state trooper's not involved and I get him, get word of mouth through uh, a different nonprofit or a family member. Um, they, they go to the PTSD website, they look up Colorado, they see my name and number on there, they call me up. Um, I have gone to, let's say, this guy's house, and if he is on any substance or if he's on any, um, this is a mistake I made, I'm getting rolling into, by the way. Um, if, he's, if he's drunk, you know, I can give him the best advice in the world, and I can pour out my heart to him, and I can share, you know, uh, rip open all my scars and share all my pain. Um, only to realize that in the morning, 
he will not remember any of that, much mm-hmm. less me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, who is this stranger? So then you, know, you get caregiver fatigue from that because you pour so much into a guy and then uh, you get nothing in return. So then you formulate, you know, my a tactic that I use now is, you know, that night I go and I basically babysit the dude. Um, babysit him to make sure that he's not harmed to himself and he's not harmed to his family. And I wait until the next morning where I can get some food and some coffee in him and some sobriety. And then I start talking strategy and tactics and say, what happened? You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. uh, a way forward for this guy to get out of um, this rut that he's stuck in. Um, Guys who are Camp Hope candidates, combat that's PTSD, um, if they're, you know, if they're drunk or they're on drugs or something like that, what I got to do is I got to get him, I got to get him sober because as soon as they get to Camp Hope, they're going to get a piss test. And mm-hmm. um, if there's anything in their system, you know, ETOH, as far as alcohol is concerned, will stay in your system two or three, four days. People mm-hmm. don't realize that. So they can't say, all right, you know, I got drunk yesterday. I'm sober today. I'm good. Um, you don't want to put all that effort into them just to get them turned around. So some of these guys, I got to put them into a 72 hour hold. Uh, I, um, make travel arrangements for them while they're, you know, in a detox facility and, you know, um, all airfare is free for these guys. And, uh, then what I do is, uh, I, I contact uh, TSA CARES and you know, give them my name and information and what, what I'm doing and why. And uh, I get, using TSA CARES, I get a pass to go through security with this guy um, at the airport so that he doesn't um, bypass his gate and go to one of the airport bars and start mm-hmm. drinking again or something, mm-hmm. right? So um, I notify Camp Hope, hey, I got the guy. I got him out the airport. He's at the gate. He's in the aircraft, you know, whisper a little words to the stewardess. Hey, no, I'll call for this guy, please. And um, aircraft wheels up. And then there's another dude on the ground who's um, a graduate. So, you know, there's four phases of Camp Hope, uh, black, red, yellow, and green. And one of the guys in the green phase, you know, his where he's at now is he's working on employment and he's giving back and he's volunteering and stuff. So he's already in a good place. Right. Anyways. So we always have, we always have a green face guy, a a guy who's recently graduated camp hope, uh, be the guy at the airport Mm. to pick him up. That way he's not met by some clinical staff stranger kind of weirdo. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that this guy doesn't trust. He's met by another guy with beard, with a beard and, you know, full sleeve arm tattoos um, saying, welcome home, brother. Mm-hmm. And that's the welcome that he gets. So then he's brought to camp and, you know, uh, his healing process can begin from there. That's really cool. But that's it. And it's the, you know, PTSD Foundation of America. Uh, what is it? PTSDUSA.org. Uh, and they're nonprofit. They insist on being that way. Because, mm-hmm. yes, they can take government grants. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they can take, you know, government money because they do such a great job. But they don't want to be beholden to the government and they don't want to um, um, have to have any, you know, uh, requirements to the government to release one of these guys' names even. They don't mm-hmm. want, you know, they don't want the government involved. Hey, you, you're the one that put them in this situation. Um, so they rely on private donors for that. That's cool. Um, that's why the my pillow guy, you know, Mike Lindell, uh, he, uh, um, you know, he's got a great story, a great book. You guys should read that. But he, uh, you know, he donates pillows and, and mattresses and, and money, um, as well as a lot of other donors. Um, uh, Gray Star uh, and private donors, you know, they they just donate. They're like, you know, hey, this is benevolent. This is real. You know, this isn't. Uh, hey, we're a nonprofit, and you know, we're a two week program to take guys um, scuba diving and deep sea fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great and all. That's great and all. You know, it's it's certainly something that I would do if I started a nonprofit because I want to go scuba diving and deep sea fishing. Right. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to do it for free based on donation. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. By the way, I'm going to, I'm going to bring some vets along with me. Okay. Yep. Um, but if, if there's not an actual treatment plan for that vet, then how, how effective is it really going to be? Right. Yeah. So they, a lot of people, a lot of angel donors and stuff, they look at that and you know, that's one of the reasons uh, behind camp hopes in uh, the PTSD foundation, their success. So I feel like we um, heard about that my pillow guy. We just went to that Warrior Rising event and we're mm-hmm. one of the companies that Jason Van Camp brought on in Salt Lake City. And I think that there was a lot of the independent donors there that help out with similar causes to that. Yeah. That we're talking about mm-hmm. it. So it sounds like it's all connected in the same kind of universe. Yeah. It's yeah, not not sure. Um I uh you know, I definitely I like Jason's nonprofit. Jason is, you know, Jason is a genius. Mm-hmm. And he's a great team leader. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I consider him to be my team leader on my mission six zero team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, um, what I do is I have a company called team. So fast, I'm subcontracted to, uh, you know, ranges and, uh, other companies like Mission Six Zero mm-hmm. or Douglas County Firearms um, to go conduct training with them, right? And the, Jason and me, we we knew each other on active duty. Um, I was the program manager for you know our advanced urban tactics, our advanced combat marksmanship, breaching, and combatives. And combatives was, was new um, as far as group was concerned. Uh, typically, um, the teams would, you know, the teams would go, this team would go to the Gracie Academy for a while and do some of that. This team over here would go to, you know, the Rex Quando Academy and do some of that, whatever. You know, this, these guys over here would go to the, you know, the, the, the nunchuck uh <laughs> sword fighting school or something like that so you know it's really weird how the teams worked and so so for me you know i i was modern army combatives level four i was special operations combatives instructor qualified i was 
um, loan operator, uh, um, which is a, a course that we run. Basically, you know, if you look at, look at like a fight scene in a Jason Bourne movie, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of scenarios we put guys through in loan operator where, because we send a lot of guys out in onesies and twosies and, uh, let, here's a, here's a scenario for you. I'll give you Okay, So we set up a meeting room and there's a desk and a computer and a bookshelf and whatnot. And there's a, a village elder in there. Right. And this guy, this SF guy, he his, his mission is to go into this room and to build rapport with this village elder, right? This village chieftain. What he doesn't know is that no matter what he says, it's just going to make this guy more and more angry and pissed off, right? So, you know, he's kind of, you know, you see the guy in there and we're watching on video cameras and stuff. And we have guys on each, in each room on the outside in uh, flower suits, high gear suits, right? And they're waiting to come in, come crashing in. And as soon as this, the, the guy gets pissed off, you know, and slams his hand on the table, you know, I'm done with you Americans, get out of here. The door opens up, four guys come rushing in and it's a full on 100% resistant fight. And uh, this guy, he knows, you know, from his seer training, he can be rolled up. And so, you see the computer monitors get thrown and smashed. You see books uh, uh, beaten against people. That's why I said the Jason Bourne scene. <laughs> there was a scene in Jason Bourne's funny <laughs> where uh, he hits a guy in the throat with a book. But yeah, these yeah. guys are, will literally these guys will literally use everything available to them to fight out of this room, right? Uh, one guy, uh, there's a window. One guy, and um, if if you fight and they're able to take you to the ground, then they put a sandbag over your head and they flex cuff you, right? And this one guy, uh, he was hooded, flex cuffed, and they started, uh, got him onto his feet and they were gonna march him out of there. And he took off and he just dove through the glass window, um, barrel rolled and took off running. And I had to take off after this guy because he was running directly for a tree, but he didn't know it because he's blindfolded. Right. So I had to stop him and call index on that scenario, you know, and give him a plus five (laughs) for, for, you know, doing a good job. Uh, Other guys that don't aren't able to get away. What happens is, is, you know, we put them in uh, a Chevy Caprice um, cop car, a trainer, you know, with like uh, the bumper uh, bumper car bumpers Mm -hmm. so that you can do pit maneuvers and stuff like that. So what we do is we have a, a guy in a blower suit with a, uh, a hockey helmet on is the driver. And the reason is, is because he knows he's getting ready to get hit and kicked in the back of the head. Right. So, you know, when you're being captured, you know, you, the longer you allow that capture to take place, the more transfers that take place, the more secure um, you have allowed the enemy to make you and it's more difficult for you to escape. So mm. the early phases is when you really want to um, give it your all. So anyways, they get this guy out. He's blindfolded, flex cuff, throw him in the back of a vehicle. And there's two guys in the back in blower suits. And there's the driver up front with the blower suit. And what this guy will do in the vehicle in this scenario is he drives in this little circuitous route at about five miles an hour. Um, 
doing figure eight just to kind of um, mess with the guy's equilibrium. So he's he can't track, you know, how many right left turns kind of thing. So anyways, he does a figure eight and you're sitting there watching it from the outside and you see you see that there is a lot of violence and fighting going on in the back of this vehicle. And it's pretty cool to watch. It's pretty cool to see. Uh, see windows get kicked out. Vehicle stops. You know, for whatever reason, the guy was able to, uh, you know, jump over the driver's seat and kick or grab the shifter and get it out of gear, get the vehicle to stop. Um, one guy had jumped out the back window, um, rolled and just took off running again. Think scenarios like that. So That's crazy. Um, <laughs> I had brought all that in the combatives program to 10th group. And I said, Hey, um, I, I had to sell 10th group on this combatives program. And um, I had to do it during a key leader engagement at the end of the day when everybody was already uh, killed by PowerPoint two or three times over. So I basically strategically, you know, I had to throw in some key four letter words. I threw in a dip on stage, you know, in front of the, all the colonels and sergeant majors and everybody. And I'm, I'm breaking all the, I'm breaking all the briefing and presentation rules. And I called everybody a pussy. <laughs> I said, you're all fucking pussies. Oh, you know, you're hiding, you're hiding behind your green beret. You think you're a badass, but what have you done? When was the last time you fought? And so I went into my speech, you know, this is where we were. This is where we are. This is where we want to be. And so basically, um, Jason was there. Um, I motivated the shit out of him, you know, and I had every officer and senior NCO leaving there, you know, like they just got done watching a Bruce Lee movie. Right. And they, they were just ready to do fucking Kung Fu punches and kicks on all the cars in the parking lot. All this stuff. It was funny. So, Group command sergeant major comes up to me and he's like, he's like, Pat, damn it, tell me what you want. Tell me where you tell, tell me where you want it. I said, This is the building I want. And I pulled out of my back pocket my statement of requirements. It was about 150 grand of equipment I wanted. Um, part of that included my own octagon. Um, of course, for selling purposes to the command mm -hmm. on that paperwork, it was listed as a safety training enclosure. <laughs> um, otherwise they would have said, no, you're just throwing some MMA shit our way. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, on top of all that, you know, and competing in combatives or martial arts, some of grappling stuff, the last competition for me was in 2016. So man, it's been five years since my last competition, but I won state and, um, got the gold medal. And I said, you know what, you know, I, George St. Pierre. I've got nothing to prove to anybody anymore and I'm getting old and I didn't tell anybody this, but like two weeks after that tournament, I was damn near bedridden, man. You know, the guy I was taking on for, uh, um, the finals, he was about 15 years younger than me. He, <laughs> he had his own supplement store right that he was a business owner so free supplements right and he uh um he was a personal trainer and so i mean uh pound for pound this guy had all the muscle on me i mean he was just 
rock solid, right? And so I remember prior to going going out, and this was this was the Nogi division. So I remember going out before going out with this guy, thinking in my head, you know, the Rocky movie. He's younger <laughs> than you. He's faster than you. He's stronger than you. And you're thinking, fuck, dude, you know. I need, I need, I need something positive my way. Give me right? some confidence, right? And, and <laughs> yeah. So, and and so, I'm thinking, what do you got? I'm, 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 so I have to win the psychological war in my head before I go out, you know, to face this guy. Otherwise, I'm outnumbered. Um, the first fight I have to fight is in my mind. The second fight I have to fight is the guy. So, I'm right now before I go on the mat, I'm fighting the fight in my mind, and I'm like, what do you got that he doesn't have, right? And I'm like, you've got grit and you've got blunt force trauma and your willingness and ability to take pain. Mm -hmm. And so I went out there and I actually ended up beating this guy 18 to one. I couldn't submit him, couldn't, couldn't uh, finalize any chokes, but I beat him 18 to one. And um, afterwards, uh, like I said, for two weeks, man, I was bedridden. You know, I was hurting. I was taking about 2,400 milligrams of Motrin a day, and I was freaking uh, all taped up, and I was hobbling around. I didn't go out in public. You know, I was like, no, I'm done. Uh, I, I've, I've, I don't know who I was setting out to prove this to, but, you know, I was doing this for myself. Yeah. So that was it. That's how I met Jason uh, with that combatives piece that's crazy and so we've had that relationship that was, i think that was in 09 or something like that and that's uh so we've had that relationship since then mm -hmm. so uh, i i because i know you've done a lot with mission six zero now and how we got acquainted was with mm -hmm. um the vr thing that we did with my company yeah and so out of everything that you've done do you think that that has been the strangest um, yes, in its own way, that was absolutely the strangest thing <laughs> that I have ever done. And, um, you know, I had to, uh, I had to contact my son, uh, one of my boys, uh, to show me how to work that. VR hooked up and working and stuff like that, and then I'm like, okay, you know, it took me time. I I I had to do my homework. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, going into that, and that was, it was very creative, man. Mm -hmm. You know, it was during it was 2020. It was during COVID, yeah, and it was such a creative way to approach team building training that you know i hadn't thought of it and i love it when there's somebody that comes up has a creative idea or something like that that i haven't thought of um because i just you know i love people who are creative that way mm -hmm. and so if i, I can give if i can give a, a little context too so I, I know we've talked about it on this podcast before in previous episodes but my company, we decided to do leadership development type work and hired Mission Six Zero to provide that, but in the sense of having groups of former military members, specifically SF members, train uh -huh. 
the basics of how to do room clearing, team communication, all that type of stuff. To and, civilians. Uh, to civilians, but it was during COVID, so we had to do it in a VR environment. And yeah. <laughs> what was awesome was when we finally did one of those first walkthroughs, there was a lot of chaos going up to that where we were like, man, we don't even know if this is going to work. This could fall f flat on its face. But then the second you started moving around and like started realizing that you could point and move and like actually position people and like talk to people with your arms and everything, I saw you, it, it clicked. Like you were like, yes, this is it. I know exactly how to do this now. It, it was yeah, it, you're absolutely right. You know, it was one of those uh, light bulb moments. And um, then you just fall back into that, that, that trainer mindset. And, you know, you guys in my mind were, you know, another team that was going through advanced urban combat training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's my responsibility to prepare you for your upcoming deployment. Um, you know, that probably... And, and just that mindset and that training piece was the, the most uh, rewarding aspect of my whole career, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had some pretty rewarding aspects, but um, getting the honor of being program manager for group. So, you know, t a group, you know, like 10th group is, is like 3,000 people mm -hmm. and about 800 of them are Green Berets, right? So to be the project or program manager for, you know, four key programs like that um, and really get to have an influence on young staff sergeants uh, and even team sergeants, you know, there were team sergeants. I, I always respected everybody and I was always delicate um, and professional toward them, regardless of their rank, um, just because I was... I was using the golden rule, right? You know, hey, staff sergeant or team sergeant, whoever, um, I'm going to treat you with the utmost respect because I expect that in return kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, and I kind of fell right into that role. And that's very common for everyone in my environment. But I fell right into that role with you guys during the VR piece. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that was that light click moment. It was like, you guys were dudes in uniforms to me. And in my head, I had forgotten that, you know, you were civilians. <laughs> and so I was just rolling like through it, man. And I'm probably, you know, is a, you know, is a mistake. I probably was throwing out some, you know, how in the military, we've got all those acronyms and jargon mm -hmm. and stuff. So I was probably throwing out all sorts of that stuff to you guys. It, you guys are kind of giving me like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, um, if there's one thing that I think would make you feel really good, because I, I told Joe this the other week too, is uh, so after you guys left and then after our whole uh, conference was over, there were a few of us that were in person. Granted, you know, we were spacing and all that kind of stuff, but we were in person. And so I wanted to see, I was like, I wonder how well the training in a VR environment could translate into the real wor world. So I set up a mm -hmm. little glass house in our conference room and I was like, all right, oh. I want you guys to stack up and clear this little room. And they did it. Nice. They did it. Nice. I, mean, I wouldn't say it was flawless, but it was as good as I would actually better than I would expect after just a few hours of training. That's pretty cool. Is, isn't that cool, man? It's crazy. And I, you I, know, I don't want to like, it's, it's like, 
it's just like, you know, that combatives briefing, right? You get them to that place where they feel like they just walked out of a Bruce Lee movie, right? Or a war movie. And now you're allowing them to reenact it physically together. And you see how excited they are. You know, like, (laughs) (laughs) I just think of all the funny stuff that you you do when you get pumped up, man. Yeah. I I don't want to like segue too far, but um, you have two sons, right? Yes, I do. So do they play video games? Um, I'm going to definitely say yes. They play video games. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, like with VR still being in that same realm, like how accurate video games are becoming with actually replicating military like missions and all that stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll give my perspective first is like the, the joystick video games and everything, you know, that you have in your hand. Not even close. Like the realism as far as, you know, the graphics and stuff obviously are getting better and better. And and they're trying to replicate a lot of the real world missions and stuff like that. But it's just to me, it's not even close. But the VR to me was very close Mm. because you do get limited about how quickly you can react with your hands and how fast you can do a mag change. Like, yes, there are buttons and joysticks you still have to get used to. But like turning your head, aiming down the sights and everything, yeah. all of that tactile Actually, motion is still there. Yeah. You know, the fact that you have to stand up and squat down, mm-hmm. even, you know, and, um, you know, that, that I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I was, you know, like when Call of Duty first got hot, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would we would be downrange, you know, task force rotation, you know, the the Rangers, their PlayStation or Xbox is set up in this pod. The SF guys are set up in another pod and so and so on these other guys and other organizations. And we're all kind of networked in together, right? Mm-hmm. And we're all talking smack. Well then we, you know, then the the online piece starts happening, right? And you see these kids just running around with these joysticks and they're waylaying these real world operators <laughs> who are really currently operating in the real world mm-hmm. and they're downrange on their <laughs> off time. You know what I mean? And you see, <laughs> so you, you hear these, 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 you know, these special forces guys yelling at these kids and, <laughs> or these rangers yelling at these kids and, or these Marines and they're getting pissed at, at them. And, you know, the kid wins, you know, and he gets like prestige mode because he himself got killed 25 times, but he killed 25 people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Marine or the SF guy or the Ranger that's yelling at him, you know, he didn't die, but he only got two or three kills. So he's like at the bottom of the stack. Yep. <laughs> he sucks, <laughs> according to the game. So so the, the game's set up, you know, just to run around absent any type of personal responsibility for your own safety and um, rack up as many kills as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like you said, going into the VR piece, completely different setup too. You know, there's also some punishment there because when you're dead, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And until you get, you know, to start over again, uh, there's no reward for how many times people shoot you. So yeah. um, that VR was yeah it was night and day different um it's actually 
what I would consider to be a good training aid, mm-hmm. um, you know, limited, uh, limited, uh, let's say, um, let's say I'm downrange and I'm, uh, I'm in Mali and I'm stuck on a flight line in a hangar with mosquitoes and I'm waiting on a trigger, uh, for my mission to go off. Right. Well, while I'm waiting, we're always gathering Intel and the more Intel, you know, we're always trying to paint that picture and stuff. We get, we get, uh, blueprint, blueprints or floor plans or whatever. That's, uh, all the better. Right. So if we recreate that environment in a VR, mm. we've got nothing else to do, but lift weights and eat, drink rippets and, you know, uh, um, Otis Stunkmeyer muffins or something, you know, whatever the army gives you for free, uh, downrange, um, you know, to be able to do that, set up a VR environment like that and kind of, you know, allow your cell leaders to go through their on target mission, mission planning, you know, um, it would be a great use of time Mm -hmm. because we never, you know, we never choreograph anything inside a structure. Um, you know, things happen, you know, there's, there's, okay. I might know the floor plan, but there's furniture. Uh, there's, uh, I might know the floor plan, but now there's furniture and now there's, uh, people. And so there's all sorts of variables. So it's, it's better just to approach that fundamentally with, you know, what we call principles of CQB principles of close quarters battle, uh, versus, okay, we're in room three. That means I'm going to be number three this time going into this room and I'm going to go left because the guy in front of me went right, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. so we don't, we don't have to get into that, but we can, you know, in fact, like you did with a glass house virtually, and that would be a, man, that would be a great passing of time thing to do, you know, because there is a lot of, man, there's, there's a lot of downtime when you're waiting on a trigger and you're sitting there and you're just waiting, 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 waiting. Um, for that, you know, that 99% boredom, 1% absolute chaos uh, mission. And so what are you doing with that boredom? You know, how are you staying productive? And this is something that, you know, I think is pretty cool. And, you know, I'm thinking about it right now. You know, I have not brought this to the attention of 10th group yet. I need to. Yeah. Absolutely. So I actually, um, another guy who's in the book, former Ranger, um, he is actually working at a VR company now mm-hmm. specifically for uh, PTSD treatment, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I should actually put you in contact with yeah. him because of your role as the PTSD coordinator and what he's doing with the VR thing. But also they're exploring other opportunities, including training as far as you know cqb principles and all that kind of stuff um they're like when when we started running through it and then when i saw civilians be able to go from the vr environment to a glass house and understand where they're at and be able to do that i was like whoa this could be pretty powerful yeah it really can and it kind of gives you an idea right i think in terms of uh fid foreign internal defense Mm -hmm. right so when we're doing a train up for a FID mission, um, you know, we're going to this country. We are going to train their military. 
um, to be able to defend itself, protect mm-hmm. itself, right? And so that's in essence very similar to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The only differences is are one we need cultural awareness so we don't offend anyone. Um, you know, you remember in Afghanistan there was a lot of blue on uh, green mm-hmm. incidences, right? And a lot of that really occurred, honestly, when the military over there started taking SF guys away from those FID missions and putting in younger soldiers because, you know, some of the Marines and soldiers that were doing it, the only instructor hat that they remembered was their drill sergeant instructor hat, right? Yep. And so they'd be yelling at these Afghanis. Well, what they don't realize when you go to a foreign country is the poorer this country, this military, these men are, the more their pride means to them. And when you embarrass them in front of the rest of the class and you don't realize that that class isn't, you know, a bunch of kids from all over the country brought together, that class is their tribe. Mm -hmm. They're all related. And so they're going to have to live with this for life this, you know, Mm. beratement that some, you know, buck sergeant did to them. And, and so we go over there, we make sure that, you know, uh, we're, we definitely honor and respect them. You know, I've had to, I've had had to eat goat balls, uh, eyeballs, um, brain, you know, during these ceremonial uh, meals and stuff like that. And then you have to do what we did with you, but you have to do it um, in their language. So the easiest way for me to do that is I always arm myself with about, I start, I always start with about 50 verbs. Verbs get, will get the job done, you know, stop, go, run, shoot, um, climb, uh, things like that. Uh, if I can get those things down and then play pointy talky with them, uh, that's 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 kind of key for me. That's that's it's been a good way for me to communicate with with a lot of these guys. Um, and we've you know we've worked with guys who are on the bottom of the the money and the technological totem pole to our joint tier one guys who are like uh, the Polish Grom or um, the Israeli uh, CT guys, you know, going over to Israel or the Israels, the Israelis coming to our Charlie company, our first battalion uh, to work with us. So I've worked with like their shell dog, Duke Devon, Sarah in the hall. Um, as a matter of fact, in 2004, um, 2003 uh we spent the summer of 2003 and then in 2004 the late winter the entire spring um with the the greek ecam which was their counterterrorism force Mm. uh for the 2004 olympics oh wow and so you know our mission in 2004 was to you know, safeguard the U.S. athletes mm. um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that was um, 
not visible to them. Like they didn't know they weren't supposed to know, you know, transparent. Um, they weren't supposed to know we were there. They weren't supposed to know any threat things they were supposed to. Our, our mission, if we did it right, was they had hundred percent focus on their sport. Right. So, um, we worked so many charges and so many room clearing, uh, it's just incredible. And then when it finally came Olympics time, you know, we were in two or three man teams. Uh, I was in a two man team. It was me and this seal and we were covering down on all the wrestling, the boxing and women's soccer. Um, and that was the year that, um, um, Women, the women beat Germany mm-hmm. for gold. And that was a big deal. Um, but, you know, we had front row seats for that. And um, we had all the athlete passes and credentials to be able to go anywhere and everywhere. So funny story on that, you know, we wanted to see Mia Ham. I don't know if you guys remember her. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so anyways, uh, we go where, where the girls are staying and we hit the restaurant up, you know, and Seals being seals, you know, he's got, you know, he's trying to play his game. We get something to eat. Uh, we want to check out the security of the, uh, the facility. We go out back of the restaurant and, you know, all of these are closed off. So like you have to go through the security and whatnot to get in there. And uh, we go out to the back and all of a sudden all I hear is rotor wash and there, there's these red lasers on our chests, right? and so i just you know i tell him i said hey man nice and slow right smile and wave and you know these guys came up uh flex cuffed us then they saw our credentials their commander comes up recognizes me from training right (laughs) his final comment to me was how'd we do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said, you guys did awesome, man. You guys did awesome. I mean, we stood no chance whatsoever. And we had no idea you were pre-postured in position here already mm-hmm. with aircraft even. I mean, they did they had, you know the rehearsals and stuff over and over and over again, right? Um, they had done it so well. So that's yeah. really, that's a cool story though. Yeah, well, and I think to give context to that too, remember right after 9-11 and then in the early 2000s, a lot of the attacks transitioned from like American focus to just being Western focused. And there was like the subway bombing. There was um, a few other bombings that happened like all throughout Europe, some stabbings, like quite a few different attacks that were happening in Europe in the early 2000s, right around when the Olympics were. Yeah. Yeah, that was big. That was big. Um, you know, as far as uh, targeting went, you know, um, if you you know you think about a soft target, two thousand four, in Greece, right? Mm-hmm. Um, next to Turkey, the gateway between the east and the west. You know, you're right there. Yep. So, yeah, we we, we put a lot of uh, importance on that in our train up for that, and, um. Actually, we put a you know a lot of not just work with you know the Greeks, but the physical conditioning for that uh, was was pretty on point. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know um, 
his uh, I'm trying to remember, remember his name right now. I'm looking for his book. Uh, and it's funny because he's a buddy of mine. He lives in Colorado Springs. He's a wrestler. He won gold uh, in the 2000 Olympics. And he took bronze in 2004. Rulon Gardner. So mm. uh, remember that fat farm boy? Uh, I do that, remember that um, actually. In 2000, we our heavyweight was this, you know, kid from Utah, um, fat, you know, chubby, non, you know, he just, he wasn't physically defined. He wasn't a physical specimen or anything like that. He had a gut, you know, he had love handles. His shoulders didn't look that. He had a pear-shaped body kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways, he's taking on the Russian who has never been defeated, right? And he's already the Olympic gold medalist. I don't know if he, he had won it twice already or not, or he had just won Olympic gold once and had won several worlds. But this guy was the Russian. You know, he was the undefeatable guy that nobody could beat, right? And Rulon Gardner went in there and beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2004... Um, when we're covering down on the wrestlers, um, you know, at the training compound, the U S athletes are using, um, myself and my seal partner, we're hanging out outside. Um, we're, you know, just kind of, um, rotating, rotating the grounds. Um, they had an Olympic sized pool there for the swim team. I remember they had the gym set up for the wrestlers and they're just, Grappling, 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 grappling. And um, when they got done training for the day, right, they had they had this freedom to be able to uh, to go out onto the local economy for a while and get something to eat, right? So me and my partner, we had, um, you know, we had basically crossed that threshold for the night where, okay, these guys are good. Um, there was the local security force was there and, and was present and we were like, okay, we're going to get something to eat. So there's this meat place right outside the gate. Right. And, um, so we ordered this big, you know, meat, meat platter for two. So we're sitting in there and we start digging into this meat platter and who comes walking in the door, but the U S Olympic wrestling team. Right. And there's nowhere else to seat to sit because the place is pretty full. So I said, you know, hey guys, we have room at our table. Why don't you come sit with us? And so they did. And you know, Rulon, he ordered the same two-person meat platter for himself. And then he ended up eating most of the rest of our two-person meat platter because he obviously he was a heavyweight he was not a diet you know what i mean but the uh yeah i mean it was just interesting sitting there for a few hours with these guys hearing their life stories you know um yeah hey i'm a i'm a plumber that's what i do you know one of the guys um and i'm for i was fortunate enough to make the team so that's really cool um, you know when i go back you know, and I get done with this, I have to build that client base back up again as a plumber, mm-hmm. right? So, um, getting to hear that side of the, the Olympic athletes, you know, um, because, you know, I've spent, I've spent 
a decent amount of time at our Olympic Village here. Um, both of my sons were in the gifted wrestling program that uh, trains in the Olympic wrestling room at the Olympic Village uh, in Colorado Springs. So, you know, my sons, they didn't get it. You know, I walk into that wrestling room and for me, it's like hallowed ground. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like the greatest American wrestlers ever uh, have put so much blood and sweat on these mats, on these walls, you know, you name it. This room, if if I could have just been a fly on the wall for the stories that it told, right? And um, one day I was in there with the boys and, uh, you know, the girls wrestling team was going on and it was really cool because they have an exchange program where they had, you know, some girls from India mm. and Japan and Brazil with the American girls and they're all just wrestling together, you know, and they're laughing and joking and they're just girls being girls. Right. But, uh, they, they always dedicated one Olympic wrestler from the wrestling team to, um, donate their time for that session to the gifted uh or the the boys just wrestling program right um and it was kind of like one of these private programs you had to know people to get into it but your sons were always training with an olympic wrestler and one day the wrestler that comes in there is henry cejudo mm. and he at the time he is the gold medal you know what i mean uh so you're like nerding out well, I'm, first, first I'm thinking, you know, who's this little kid? Because he's so small, man. Yeah. Like, like, and then, uh, then I'm like, then he comes in and people are coming up to him, shaking his hand, and da 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 da, and it's slowly dawning on me. Oh yeah, but no big deal, you know what I mean? That's Henry, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> Called triple C, right? Uh. Yeah, anyways, he was much more humble as a wrestler. <laughs> um, UFC, you know, when he makes that mean face, right? That tough guy face in the UFC. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, man, but I know this guy in real life, and I know how tender-hearted and how nice he is. You know what I mean? Uh, it's all for a show. So it's all puts, a show. Oh, it is so it's all a show. show. You know what I mean? Like Tito Ortiz. It's all yep. for a show. Yep. So I just smile I smile every time I see Henry act tough on there because I know that he's a mama's boy and he is uh, you know, a good hearted guy mm -hmm. that you know he went to uh one of our local high schools, you know, that we competed against every season. And so, you know, have him coach my sons and take a picture with him was kind of cool. Well, to, uh, to kind of like bring it full circle, um, I know yeah, you, have, you, how many circles have we covered? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, how many but segues, to, you know, <laughs> but this to is bring like it, the Alice's wonderland, the rabbit hole <laughs> to, to bring it full circle to the beginning, because I, I know you said, you know, you weren't, you weren't particularly good in high school and everything. And you were, you were leaning over and cheating off of people's papers, but everything that you've gone through and then, you know, that you've learned and picked up to this point that you're still striving to learn because you were telling me you're trying to get your ham radio license and 
all these other things you're you're working on like what what is it that you're working on now what's next and Mm -hmm. where do you see yourself going and and is it just to keep supporting these things and working with the pts groups or ptsd groups and and you know help them give back that way or what's next you know i right now i'm in a shiny object phase of my life right where you know hey oh hey there's a shiny object you know and i'm gonna go for it and uh I do it until I've satisfied my curiosity or I've mastered it, right? Got to a point of proficiency with it, like, um, you know, taking, taking, uh, flying lessons. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I said, Hey, I don't, I, I want to just on a whim, man. I want to know how to fly a plane. Mm-hmm. So I went to Peterson Air Force Base. I went to their civil air patrol and I said, Hey, how do I do it? And <laughs> they got an instructor and an hour later, you know, He's given me a, a pre-takeoff inspection class of the aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. And then he sits me inside there. He's talking to the aircraft, and uh, we've got two sets of toggles and headsets, and he says, we go over the commands and everything. He gets me up in the air, and this was like that morning I woke up and decided I'm going to fly. And uh, um, he gets me up. Um, to an area just west of the Colorado Springs Airport that's used for a lot of training, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he gets me up there. I'm literally fl- the one flying the plane, right? Training session. Um, it's like it's a two-week class. You go uh, two nights a week kind of thing. And then uh, I take 11 flying sessions, right? And the reason I, I took 11 was be- – can you guys hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The reason I took 11 was because by nine, I was already practicing touching goes on my landings. Right. And so I got comfortable talking to the tower, taking off, flying, circling right, left, up, down, engine stall, recover and land. And I had satisfied, you know, I didn't get my my pilot's license, but I had satisfied (laughs) my curiosity. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was able to take off and land a plane. And it was something that was in me from that Operation Ugly Baby, right? Yeah. Was because ever since then, the only time I've had fear in a flight or literally had a PTSD st- type of reaction in a flight was on a civilian flight. Mm. Ever since that, you know, that infill. I don't care what happens on a C-130. I fall right asleep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The white noise of the turboprops, whatever. Uh, I have that much faith in those C-130s. And so um, rather than it being a negative trigger for me, you know, it's positive reinforcement for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that alone, though, was, was the reason why I had gone over and, and just, just did that. And then recently, um, two weeks ago, I just got a wild hair in my ass. Um, and I went, um, cruised down to Florida and I spent a week in the Keys, um, diving. Um, and I got my wife her PADI certification. Um, it's kind of cool because the Special Forces Diving School is in the Florida Keys. So I've got a lot of buddies down there that retired there. And I just had to, you know, call up a dive instructor and say, hey, bro. 
you want to uh, you want to teach my wife, you know, how to dive and get her paddy certification? He's like, yeah, sure, man. When are you going to be here? I said, well, I'm looking at MapQuest right now. It's telling me, <laughs> it's, literally, this is what I told him. You know what I mean? It's telling me it's uh, 18-something eight, hours of driving, whatever, right? Uh, and I said, but, you know, we probably want to take a couple breaks in there. So give me a couple of days. And he's like, yeah, sure. And so I give him a couple of days and I call him again. And he's like, he's like, so where are you at? I said, I'm, a, I'm a, um, south of Jacksonville on Cocoa Beach. And he's like, what? You're really doing this? <laughs> like, yeah, bro, I'm here. <laughs> I go, yeah, dude, I'm really doing this. I'm really here. And so we just came down, you know, we bought fins and snorkels, masks and whatnot, and just rented our rigs. That's uh, just freaking, yeah! I have a you know, little little twenty six foot RV, and um, we decided on the way we're gonna visit both my sons. So oh, yeah. my youngest son, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. You know, he's still a private E two, so I still have all his clothes and all his mementos and stuff from home, right? Mm -hmm. So he's literally there in the barracks with what he had so we brought all that stuff to him right mm -hmm. and then we're like well our oldest son he's in the advanced leaders course they used to call it bnoc um uh for staff sergeant uh and he's going to be there for two more days at, in fort benning georgia let's go let's go see him all right cool so that's what we did <laughs> that's how you're supposed yeah. to love that's why when i went out there to colorado when dan was telling me he's like you gotta meet up with jeff for the book when we were talking about it and i was like oh really and he's like no you don't get it like you're gonna vibe with them really well and i was like why is that he's like just trust me and then like i remember <laughs> being in colorado after i visited you and your wife when we had you know lunch and all that and took your photo i was leaving and i was like damn dude i was like you were kind of right jeff's kind of like a redneck country boy and like i fucking vibed with him so like easily <laughs> So yeah, man, we hit it off. We had a good lunch there. You know what I mean? Next time you come through, you definitely got to come stay with us. Yeah, definitely. You know? I was going to say, both welcome. Yeah, and anytime you, know, you uh, anytime you want to, you know, do like a relay race through some vines in North Carolina. Yeah, more than welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I got some bushes right in my neighborhood that we could find. Oh yeah, <laughs> man. Oh my gosh. I, I yeah I, I think i will admire those literally honestly i will admire those from afar <laughs> yeah i don't blame you <laughs> we'll let you know how they are but a lot of fond memories you know what i mean wearing a legging on my head you know <laughs> uh yeah a lot of fond memories with that but we'll see you well, know we uh we'll see how it goes we definitely appreciate having you on and uh i know we've been wanting to have you on the podcast and uh it's just great to kind of get you on here more of your full-length story so you know when this book comes out and people get to see the shorter form you know hopefully they can go to this and, and listen to your full length story well thanks for having me guys i you know i love talking to you guys i, I really love what you do i think it's incredibly benevolent and like i said uh, we talked about earlier you know i think uh you know looking at the, the families um yeah. mm -hmm. uh 
is version 2.0 is a potential, you know, uh, to me, it'd be something that I would almost feel beholden to purchase, you know, Mm -hmm. knowing that that was out there out of respect for my own wife. Yeah. So, and that kind of thing. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to September and seeing the book come out and getting to read it, you know, into, uh, get a little insight into, you know, the lives of these other guys that, you know, we fought along. Right. Yep. So it's going to be cool, man. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank Um, you. I appreciate it. And, you know, don't let this, you know, don't, don't let this be the end of, uh, you know, you guys getting out to Colorado. Um, you know, we got, you know, we got 23 world-class ski resorts here. Uh, they turn into sweet downhill mountain bikes. That's what I hear. Runs during the summer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get the epic pass, man. Get the epic pass and we can just do downhill. Oh, yeah. So it's like, yeah, you know, riding uphill, that's for people with, <laughs> you know, like energy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go downhill. <laughs> the downhill is so fun, man. Cause you take the gondola up and get off. You go downhill, drink beer, do it again mm-hmm. until one of your buddies is too drunk to ride his bicycle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. All right, brother, we'll yes, keep in touch. Back and, to the uh, hotel. And, and thanks for being a part of it. We appreciate you being on. All right, take care, guys. Mm-hmm.